When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fantasy Fangirls Podcast, where two sisters dive deep into beloved fantasy lore, character themes, theories, and more. Before we dive into our final episode of Fourth Wing, covering chapters 36 through 39. Woo, I can't believe we're even saying that. We're here, you guys. Oh my gosh, we made it. (laughs) I feel like we've run a marathon. As always, we do have our content warning. We of Fantasy Fangirls Podcast are adults who say adult things about an adult book. We are in Zayden Ryerson's head in this stretch, and it turns out that he has the horniness of a 15-year-old boy, at least when it comes to Violet. And yes, we will be talking about it. Is that a surprise to anybody? <laughs> you know, it actually kind of was. It kind of was a slight surprise of like how much he's like, I need to fuck her now. And I'm like, whoa, she's been awake for five seconds, dude. Chill. On that topic, we also talk spoilers. Everything from the entire Fourth Wing book, the Iron Flame excerpt, and speculations, except for the audiobook previews. We know some of you don't want to know anything until the book actually comes out. So we are not specifically talking about any of that. We do have a whole bonus episode on that. And of course, anything from Rebecca Yaros is on the table here. Just going to say, this is the last episode. We're talking about the end of the book. We're talking about the biggest spoiler that happens at the end of the book. Enough said. And now, Lexi, it's been my honor to share this book with you. Let's close it out and join the revolution. Huzzah! Oh, man, this is going to be a tough one, but we're so excited. Let's do this. And one more thing. Fantasy Fangirls is now on Patreon. Yes, you'll get more content from us and get more out of this community. Plus, this kind of support is the absolute best way to help us of Fantasy Fangirls keep giving back to you, our incredible community. There are two tier options that you can join at, and the content includes things like a Discord, monthly live Q&As, discounted merch, our outlines, yes, the 30 to 45 pages ones, early access to episodes and more. We understand that everyone might not be in a position to support us in this way and that's totally fine but if you are and you enjoy this content you want more of it and you want to support Nicole myself and our growing team we would so 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 appreciate you joining our Patreon. The link to learn more about our Patreon is in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Before we begin our dive into this final stretch of chapters, let us begin, as always, with our battle brief. Nicole, take it away with chapters 36 through 39. Chapter 36. Standing on the battlements of Athbeen, Liam, using his Farsight Signet, sees four figures basically apparate outside of the city of Resin. These four figures are wearing purple robes and have red veins. Welcome to the chat, Venon! And shit's about to get fucked up. Seven Griffin riders arrive, and the one who is just oh so delightful by the lake approaches. It is a death sentence, and they are going down there, but not you all, though. Scram. A torn-up Zayden knows he has to make an impossible decision. He decides to fight and as does everyone else in this makeshift squad violet included of course after checking with taryn our favorite curmudgeon who's ready for some fucking blood we will feast on their bones silver one 
point made, my guy. Gearing up for battle, Zayden reminds us the only way to take them out is by dagger. You hear that, Lexi? The only way to take them out is by dagger. But after a heartfelt goodbye with Andarna and an approval from Sigale for Violet's choices, the two-legged flying creatures come down from the sky. Welcome to the chat, Wyvern! Zayden gives Violet a dagger and promises that if they live, he will tell her everything that she wants to know. I'm holding you to that in Iron Flame, Zayden. It's time for battle, and immediately chaos ensues. And after unsuccessfully killing a venom because apparently they're fireproof a squad member soleil finds an abandoned mine and they begin ushering civilians out towards it but a venom lands near them and begins channeling magic straight from the earth's core causing anything and anyone to shrivel up into a sack of human skin including soleil and her dragon holy shit there's an outpost which Terrence states has a container with the Mari family crest on it? Question mark, question mark. And it's highly unstable. But our Ravenclaw is two steps ahead. Getting Taryn into position as around them, Liam wields spears of ice. What? Taryn breathes deep and blows the damn thing up. But the venom survived. Damn it. It's almost like Zayden was right. And the only thing that kills them is daggers. Who knew? But there's a new problem. There's more venom and wyvern and it's time to play distraction. Our girl wields lightning more and hits the bullseye seeing a wyvern drop straight out of the sky. Violet gets momentarily distracted by Zayden being an absolute shadow daddy to the point that Taryn almost gets gutted by a wyvern. Oops! Sigale to the rescue though, but not without some major side eye towards our girl. Violet's attention then switches to Liam just in time to see him slit a venom's throat. One down. They might actually be okay, but... The hope does not last long. A wyvern comes out of the blue and begins fighting with Day. Day does not live. No! A dragon without a rider is a tragedy. A rider without their dragon is dead. Liam's heart begins to slow as Violet attempts to take him towards Day's body, but she cannot get him there. Liam asks Violet to look after Sloane, and a distraught Violet agrees to his dying plea from her shadow, her friend. Zayden arrives and takes Liam to Day, and Liam's soul is sent to Malik next to his dragon. Oh, can I get the biggest no ever? <laughs> no! still in battle and dozens and dozens of wyvern come down into the valley and violet is ready for revenge and she launches into the air but shortly after tarn roars in pain that is all chapter 36 who chapter 37 a venom has a sword embedded into tarn violet and the venom begin to duel but violet is severely outmatched our girl gets a poison dagger shoved into her side and the venom gives us a very cryptic download. Yes, we will be talking about it. Zayden fills the area with shadows, disorienting the venom, and our girl gets her second kill of the book. Goodbye, cryptic venom. But Violet is definitely poisoned. She has just enough strength to make a plan. She's going to take out the second to last venom with lightning, and Zayden can handle the last one. Using every ounce of energy she has and then some, Violet wields lightning at the venom, but she's burning out, and Taryn is not having it. Let me help. A golden voice exclaims, and together with Indarna, Violet stops time to control the lightning to strike true onto the venom. He dies 
instantly. Zayden gets the last venom with a beautifully lethal dagger move, but the black blood pouring from Violet's side causes her to fall off Taryn's back. Chapter 38. Violet falls, but our incredibly beautiful shimmering gold dragon stops time again and catches her. Then when time resumes, an absolutely panicked Zayden begs her to fight the poison that is cutting off her magically before she is knocked out. This will be a theme in this chapter. Violet comes to and overhears the remaining members of the Marked One squad debate what to do next. Her blood is black. That's not good. They need to get her to a mender. But Nolan is 12 hours away in Bezgaeth and Violet would be deader than doornails. So that's not an option. But just like a light bulb popping over Zayden's head, there's somewhere else and he will save her. Ooh, mystery. And our girl's out again. And she wakes up. But everything hurts and she has nothing left. She's being carried by Zayden who has an irate Taren breathing down his neck. Zayden? A familiar voice says, but who could it be? But our protective shadow daddy utters and responds only, you have to save her. Chapter 39. Who's that boy? It's Zayden. We're in his head and poor guy is losing it. This barely sane Zayden gives us hopeless romantic, the download we've all been craving. Homeboy fell first. Yes. But Violet wakes up and she's healed. And she's like, what's wrong, Zayden? Doe-eyed and bushy-tailed and sweet, naive Zayden is like, oh, maybe this won't be so bad after all. Oh, wait, she lost all her memories. This is awkward. It's all coming back. It's all coming back to by now. Where are we? Where is this mystery location? Surprise, Arisha lives. But this brilliant fucking woman kicks Zayden out of his own room because she remembers everything and she's pissed. Zayden joins his two best friends in the hall and we get a quick update on the last three days. Violet will need to learn how to shield from Dane. Two Griffin flyers survived. There was a box that Garrick's dragon was attracted to and they have it in their possession and they're figuring it out and Zayden smells like dragon ass. After Zayden and Violet are bathed and looking like a snack, at least according to Zayden, Zayden asks Violet the all-important question, are you willing to fight with us? Violet confirms and all is right with the world. But Zayden's joy is quickly smothered. She's fighting with them, but no way in hell is she trusting him. But he admits in his head he loves her. Nicole weeps in a corner and is so happy. A sound knocks on the door. Who could that be? It's dramatic entrance Brennan Mender Soringale. Welcome to the revolution, Violet. Woo! End of book. All right, folks, that was a great episode. We can't <laughs> wait to see you in Iron Flame. Talk to you soon. You just had some people panicking. (laughs) No, we got the longest episode yet. Here comes Oh, absolutely. No doubt in my mind. Let's tap into our signet power. Let's talk key insights, reflections, foreshadowing, and of course, our favorite theories. Let's kick it off with the impending doom. Taryn and Violet felt something was off at the lake, and it's stronger here coming from the valley below, which means that a shit ton of venom and wyverns are on their way. But interestingly enough, Tyron isn't able to pinpoint what it is before they know that it's the venom, but he just knows where it's coming from. How I took this was, you know, Tyron in chapter 35 mentions that magic is wilder here and how harder for dragons and riders to communicate. It's harder for dragons to communicate with other dragons when the magic is swirling around them in this way. So my guess is that it's also maybe harder for Tyron to be this like all-knowing Gandalf character 
in instead he's just feeling it rather than able to pinpoint it where maybe it would be easier in Navarre for him to do that that makes absolute sense to me yes that is canon capital C (laughs) canon now and then I just want to note that Dane's dad he might be like an uncle figure to Violet but she knows what he's capable of she knows what he's really capable of and like she had no doubt that he set this up as an execution after what Dane found in her memories it's weird hearing this because it's like he when again I keep going back to that like nice flight lines Violet because that's just such a dad moment I think that also especially since she lost her dad maybe he kind of stepped into that role for her I know it wasn't like you know when she was super young where that would make more sense but like maybe he did kind of fulfill that role for her a little bit more but the fact that she was just so quick to be like yeah Dane's dad's an asshole he would totally do this did kind of stand out to me I also want to point out again we don't know what his signet is this shit is keeping me up at night like I need to know what his freaking signet is I still pretty firmly stand strong that it is some kind of interrogation technique maybe it's pain like kind of a crucio vibe maybe it is something that allows him to tap into more mind stuff like dane's signet i don't know but like i think it's going to be horrific whatever it is and i I, wonder if violet even knows i bet she does know oh that's a good point she never ever mentions his signet which to me means that it's i'm not going to categorize it as her i I totally see what you're going with there like as far as the interrogation goes i'm sticking in the corner that it is a lot more like information based but I don't like when you think about the big bad signets, right? The really powerful ones. She brings up Melgren's quite frequently. It's known as a very powerful one. So I'm going to guess because his is not mentioned to that same scale that it's not either as well known, but I think that she does still know it, or it's a little bit more of like a subtler signet. Again, I think about interrogation, but more along lines of knowledge base. I really think that it is more of a knowledge base because he's the right hand to the general. It's something more along those lines. I think I definitely agree. I do think it's going to be something more information based. I think it's going to be, let me be clear. I think it's going to be used in a horrific way in our story. It's Got it. Yeah. Used against our characters in a way that's going to have us like shaking reading our books. Watch it be like wielding spears of ice. It's going to be so chill. There's no way he could be the rank he is with it, with something like that. But I watch it be something so much more common and we're like panicking over it. The the letter addressed to Zayden in Colonel Atos's handwriting. We didn't get exactly what it said in the last stretch of chapters. So let's recap here where we learn exactly what it does say. Number one, this is a test of your Zayden's command. Number two, you, Zayden, have the choice of abandoning the village of our enemy or abandoning command of your wing. And if Zayden's squad leaves now, they can make it to the new location of Fourth Wing's headquarters at El Tuvo in time for the war games. But if they leave, this Russian trading post and its 300 poor mill citizens, they're goners. Which, you know, as Zayden does conclude, Bezgayeth leadership is testing the Mark One's loyalty without outright saying it. I don't know. I'm going to say it seems pretty clearly spelled out here that they have to make that choice, but tomato, tomato. I mean, it literally says you have the choice of abandoning a village of your enemy or abandoning command of your wing. That seems pretty like testing your loyalty, my guy. Now, to be fair, we don't get the exact wording, so maybe they're paraphrasing. This does bring back the question, though, of is Zayden going to be able to go back into Navarre and back into the Navarian military? Because I don't 
think he can, but I also don't see how that would play out in our story. So we're not going to touch on that too much in this episode. We do mm-hmm. have one more final fourth wing thoughts and Iron Flame predictions that we are going to be diving more into like that sort of stuff there. But there is a line, however, later on that Emogen says that does make me wonder if he was planning on going back to Best Guys. But it really brings that question to light where he did not choose that. So technically, he is absolutely abandoning his wing, abandoning his leadership role here. Yeah. So how is that going to work? No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and we should also note, like, if Zayn is in Arisha, if he decides to be there with the Rebellion, with Brennan, that's on the other side of Navarre. That's a long ass flight away for Zayden and Violet to be doing back and forth on Taryn and Segale. And just for story purposes, I don't know how that's going to work. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Yep. yep. Maybe we'll learn how to apparate like the Venoms. Maybe that's the second <laughs> signet that someone gets. Oh, there are there is a lot of speculation about that. Um, so, so Zayden's squad deciding to fight. So first of all, it's important to note that it doesn't seem like any of these marked ones, including Zayden, maybe, like they've ever actually seen a Venom before. We know at least Liam hasn't, which of course makes sense for his character. We know that Emogen hasn't, Bodhi hasn't, and I'm just thinking that if Bodhi hasn't, then most of the others haven't either. Bodhi is one of the real central, he's a right hand to Zayden here. Again, there's not confirmation that Zayden has seen or not seen the Venom, but that's a little up for discussion here. Again, because Bodhi hasn't, I'm leaning towards Zayden hasn't. But like Imogen didn't even know about their signature red veins. They knew so little about these dark magicians, whatever you want to call the Venom, right? Violet knows more about them than they do. And she, they've known almost their whole lives that Venom and Wyvern are real. And they didn't even know what Wyvern were. <laughs> like, what is happening? And, and that also goes to show like later Zayden says, you know, we should have told you because you could have given us the information that we needed to kill them and it's like yeah. pisses me off I can't yeah, Zayden, that would <laughs> oh my god I agree with you I personally do not think that Zayden has ever seen them before but however I do think his like I'm gonna put this in air quotes familiarity with them is from his dad telling him stories he's read the fables of the Baron as far as we're concerned we're assuming so strongly assuming for me I think his familiarity with the Venon is from his dad's stories that he told him and all that kind of stuff but the fact that none of the other ones knew about it I mean I know that they were like we if we're interrogated everything's we're we're fucked that seems like some pretty big information left on the table. Well, it's like they, they know that Venom exists. They know that they're really bad. They know what they're doing to poor Emil, but they don't know any more details. Like that's – and Zayden makes sure of that on purpose, that they're not given more information in case they do get interrogated there. I love how Zayden does handle their predicament here. It's just one more reason to love Zayden, especially in the stretch where he took a few L's, which actually, by the way, quite a few of our listeners have asked, what does taking L's mean? So let's clear that up here. Final episode. Let's clear that up. Only took us 15 hours to get to clearing this up thing that we say on every single episode. So taking an L means that you're taking a loss. Basically, like you are doing something that is not great. You're doing something that makes you go down a peg. Let's say taking a W means taking a win, something that goes up a peg. Yep. All right, cool. Back to the story here. (laughs) Zayden, he doesn't let his squad just jump into this, you know, jump in to go fight without making them think and consciously decide about this decision. He lays out the harsh reality and then says, okay, now this is your choice. Just letting them just jump into it without thinking, which most of them would have probably done. I love seeing these moments where it's like, oh, this is why Zayden's a wing leader. Right. This is why he's in command. I mean, we learn later that Arisha is his. So I'm assuming of the revolution, he's 
pretty freaking high up there in command. I'm assuming he's going to get like into a more command leadership later on in the books. I also love his quote, all command structure aside, what are your thoughts? I love that this is a family decision. It's not Zayden in command making the decision. It's Zayden in command, but making it a group decision. I love that distinction because that to me is true leadership. I I absolutely agree. Oh, and I just... I feel for Zayden so much in this scene. He is making an impossible decision. You know those psych problems that are like, you have two options. You can save one person on a railroad as a train is coming towards them, or you can save five people on a railroad as a train is coming towards them. First and foremost, why the fuck did we do those in grade school? That's so fucked up. Like, why did we answer those questions? Did we do that in grade school? I did that like in college. (laughs) I definitely did that in grade school. And I think that's- We went to the same grade school. We had very different experiences at this grade school. (laughs) But I just think that it's in alignment with that. Like no matter what decision you choose, it's horrific. They chose the morally positive choice in the long term, I do think. And it did work out to their advantage. You know, only a few riders were lost. Satan and our core group were still alive. Thank God. But I could not imagine being in his shoes right now. Yeah. And then the main Griffin flyer, who I think that we can determine is Serena, um, which we find out later on that she and her sister did survive this. She is flat out not just asking them not to fight, but telling them to leave. Even after taunting Violet earlier about not being willing to lift a finger, she's like, nope, we don't want you guys to lift a finger. You got to get out of here. Like, this is actually really dangerous. You did not sign up for this. This is our cross to bear, so to speak. But gosh, like Violet, she feels like this goes against everything they stand for to run away, which is quite ironic since everything they, being Navarre, stands for is quite literally the opposite of this reality. And that just, again, paints the picture of how upside down Violet's world is. The Griffin Flyers, they're on Griffins, which are about a third of the size of dragons. Griffins cannot breathe fire, which, you know, obviously Venon survive fire. We talked about that in Battle Brief, but they can also make things blow up. And that is very helpful. And I know that she's like, we lost two drifts of Griffin Flyers in our last battle against two Venon. But I'm also like, I mean, but dragons are a little bit on the higher scale of griffins. Not to make it like a pedestal thing, but like dragons are definitely in first place and I'd put griffins in the lower end. So I understand why she's like, don't fight. But if I was her, I'd be like, I need every fucking one of your dragons you're willing to. Because it's just, you have better odds. Now I do also want to point out the main griffin flyer, where again, we're assuming this is Serena. She brings a great point to readers' attention. She says, have any of you seen combat? And in Violet's inner monologue, she says, I feel young as we reply with our silence. It is really important to us as readers to remember this squad is between 20 to 23. That is young. And yet it is so in alignment with the fantasy lore of, you know, with the fantasy stories that we all know and love. The younger generation are the ones who change the world. We see this in Harry Potter, Hunger Games, the Grishaverse, and a hundred thousand percent other stories that give us this example. And I just think that's such a beautiful thing for us to be called to attention before they go into what we think is a suicide mission. I love that. And man, that does give me hope for Gen Z in our, <laughs> in our society. Ain't that the fucking truth. But Violet, she sums this section and, and really this book up so well with this line. We can live as cowards or die as writers. It gives me chills every time I read it. You know, it's again, the premise of this whole story. And it's that final, like the fork in the road, right? What decision are they going to make? They're going to go with the one that they've been training for and that their instincts are to protect. I also can't help but think of Dane through the entire first 
two thirds of this book where he's like, get out of the writer's quadrant, get out of the writer's quadrant versus she chose die as writers. So she's been choosing die as writers for so for this entire book. And Dane's been pushing her in the other direction. So I just I love that tie in there. Dane, of course, wanted her to stay safe. And Zayden's approach to wanting her to stay safe is, of course, very different. He knows that that's not her. He's like, I'm not going to pick a fight that I know I can't win here. It's not up to him to make her do anything, especially when he's trained her for this. He knew something like this was going to come. And he has to respect her decision and also trust what he's trained her to do. And, you know, he may have a lot of secrets, but Damn it, I just love him so much in this moment. More, you know, I always love him, but especially in this moment, how he respects her decision. And they're a team here. Even though they have some serious trust issues, they are a team. Even when push comes to shove, they are still a team. This also is such a bright neon sign to Zayden, Dane, and even Mira's differences on how they treat Violet's decisions. And in fact, if there is anyone I could compare this decision that Zayden's doing, and he's been doing this throughout the entire book, but this one specifically, if I could compare Zayden to anyone else in Violet's life who would be a similar type of decision, it would be Lilith. And they say you end up with someone like your parents and, you know, there you go. But I do think that like there's such a parallel between Lilith being like, I trust you to, you know, either fight the hell out of this situation or die. Oh, darn. So sad. But like, I mean, obviously Zayden would be torn up. We see this at him as towards the end of the book, but like it is this trust that I know what you're capable of. So we also learn in this stretch that Zayden and Garrick were smuggling weapons. They started smuggling weapons year one at Bezgaeth. So they started doing this after threshing, which makes total sense because that means it's after they bonded with their dragons and that's when they started smuggling the weapons. Of course this makes sense for geographical purposes. You know, they only started because that's when they were able to literally get up and fly and be able to travel really far distances to go meet up with the Griffin Riders of Pormiel. But I also have to wonder, did they get some information about this Griffin Flyer alliance from their dragons? Did their dragons have an influence on this after they bonded and that's when they started doing these weapons? Or did the dragons have some knowledge about the previous rebellion that, hey, some people are still alive. You want to go start join this revolution here? I, again, I don't have no idea. But I do think ultimately it's probably because of the transportation and now just be more powerful individuals. I do believe Zayden surely had a poor meal connection from, you know, his dad from the previous rebellion. Oh, yeah. Not that the Griffin Flyers were directly involved in the rebellion themselves, but just that Fen Ryerson was connected to them and wanted to help them fight off the Venom. And that same connection and alliance there would extend to Zayden. So anyway, so that's just interesting to think about the timeline about why and how they started meeting up with the Griffin Flyers. Did the dragons have any influence in that after they bonded and just how that whole dynamic worked to get, start doing that in the first place. Well, and I know that there's some speculation that Zayden's mom is a poor Emil citizen, even possibly a Griffin Flyer in poor Emil, if that is a tie-in. Or even, I mean, honestly, even someone in Garrick's family, like maybe one of Garrick's parents was a tie-in there. We There's so much we don't know there, but we can obviously have so much fun and speculate. And we'll talk more about Zayden's mom later on in Zayden's POV. But now it's time to talk about when Liam is making his decision on to fight or to go to this other outpost for their war games actual assignment. By the way, I just think of everyone at El Tuval being like, where are they? (laughs) (laughs) Like, where'd they go? Aren't they supposed to be here? Well, it's like they knew that they would have gone to Athbane because that was kind of like a public announcement. And then it's like, oh, shoot. So I bet they're like, oh, shit. 
something might be going down. Because I'm assuming they they had to tell Colonel Atos, like they had to do the writing of like, so he didn't show. Let's send this note back to them so that they know he didn't show up. Probably somebody. Possibly. Yeah. Or I wonder if that there was somebody on the inside with Buzz Guy's leadership at this other outpost so that if Zayden did choose to go there, it would still be some kind of, okay, let's make sure that War Games is extra hard for him. So, yeah. But so as Liam's making this decision, he says, I would like to think that my death would be just as honorable. Rebecca, <laughs> ouch. Honorable. We get a very similar version of this word later on when he says, it's been my honor. Twist the fucking knife. Jesus, God. There's also a moment where in Violet's inner monologue, she says, guess I'll be the second child she, Lilith, sacrifices to keep the existence of Venon a secret. And she will be the second child to turn on her mother because of this secret. I just love that line. A a line like this makes me really wonder if she does know Brennan is alive. A lot of people do believe this. I've personally always believed not, but now I'm starting to wonder maybe. I don't know. It just feels like foreshadowing. So we do find out that Brennan is alive. So this line is already not what it all seems. Could that be the same case with her mom, that she didn't sacrifice her child for the secret in some way, that it's not just one small part of this line, but it's way more complex than Violet even thinks about. So I was just thinking like, oh, that That sounds like a foreshadowing line there. I do wonder if Lilith knows that Zayden brought Violet to the suicide mission. Because I'm assuming Lilith knows about the suicide mission. I do wonder, like, does she know that her daughter's beyond the wards about to go fight Venon? We talked about this a little bit in the AMA bonus episode, talking about theories, where I do think that she does know it. However, as far as her having a big reaction to it, I don't think we're outwardly going to see that. There's going to be some feigned indifference there, whether that's actually the truth or not. But I don't think she's going to suddenly be mad at Colonel Eidos. Like, that's not how. No. this world works yeah. yeah she's too calm cool collected but we do need to talk about is it seven or six griffins because when they're all making the decision to fight Taryn warns Violet and then all the other dragons warn their riders that there are seven griffins that landed next to them the griffin flyer female states that there are seven of them going down to fight as well but when Liam is describing the scenario like after everyone's agreed like haha we're gonna go fight Zayden's like give me the report and Liam's describing that the flyer are engaged all seven dash six of them so where did one go there were seven (laughs) why was that important this feels notable i love that you caught that because i i didn't because they do say seven griffins and seven flyers multiple times and then that is where liam corrects it and and we can absolutely trust liam if he says that there's six of them he's got farsight so we can assume yes that's six of them my thought is we learn that this female griffin flyer survives at least we think that it's serena and so does her sister so i'm wondering if it's her sister maybe who stayed out of the fighting, you know, she left to go be a messenger about what happened, knowing that everybody else is going to die. Like there's not going to be anyone to share this huge thing that happened with the Venon. They need somebody to act as a messenger to survive this, to go and share this news and warn other people. That was my interpretation of where did that other Griffin flyer go? That would make sense to me. Because I mean, the poor million, poor millions, poor millions, <laughs> the people of poor mill needed to know this major thing happened. And at the end, Bodhi says, Serena lives, so does her sister. Everyone else dies, basically. That would make sense. I can appreciate that. Now, I do have a question. If you are going to be fighting these Venon, who can basically apparate, they can explode things with magic, 
why in the God's given hell would you make daggers? And they have staffs and they're so good. Like, why not make a sword or an axe or something that's going to be, I don't or know, arrows. fucking useful or arrows. Arrows <laughs> might be useful. Yeah. Shoot off the back of your dragon. Like, why would you make daggers? The tiniest little weapons. Why would you do that? Oh, maybe this is where the crossbows are going to come into play. Remember, we've been getting a lot of hints about a crossbow. Maybe it's not so much the dragons. It's going to be the venom that the crossbows are going to be aimed at. I'm so so here for this. Yeah, that's a good point. I, my guess is that it has to do with the material and it can only be used in small amounts. So a dagger is all that would work for them when making these weapons and like it couldn't handle being a sword or something like that. Now that does not make sense for if it was like an arrow that would also be on the smaller Arrows side. Are so yeah, tiny. maybe their insider guy who is making all of these weapons only knows how to make daggers. <laughs> Get a better blacksmith, guys. <laughs> That's what Lilith has too. I think that the only thing that can be made is daggers, at least that, that we maybe, know of at this time. Maybe this will be like Pokemon and every book, it like evolves into a new level of weapon, you know? Surprisingly, that's not going to be the only mention of Pokemon in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, foreshadowing. I know, right? Just bring back my <laughs> childhood nostalgia here. Yes, we did collect Pokemon cards. Thank you for asking, listeners. So there's a quote that says, Quote, I bite back a sad smile. It's really too bad I won't get to see her and Darna go through her rebellious adolescent years. So in a recent TikTok and Instagram post, Waterstone interviewed Rebecca super quickly. It was like three quick things that we learn about Iron Flame. And we learn from this post that we're getting a very snarky teenage Andarna. And in this stretch, Violet is like, I need you to stay here, Andarna. And Darna responds with, stay here, like as grumbles really sarcastically. And and I just, I love that little hint of like, oh, here's some of the snarky teenage Andarna we're going to get. And side note, I cannot wait to see Tarn and Andarna interact in Iron Flame, our big curmudgeon of a dragon with this snarky teenager. I'm so excited. But also in this little interaction between Violet and Andarna, it is so gut-wrenching. You know, Violet's resolved in her acceptance of her own death. It just guts me in this like would-be final interaction with Andarna. She really does think that she's saying goodbye and she's okay with it. She's accepted it, you know? A quote here from Violet, you'll feel the moment when you'll know that there's nothing to leave. She just knows that she's going to die and her bravery makes me love her all the more. Let's move on to Wyvern. <laughs> Away from the heartfelt gooey goodness, we do get confirmation or at least as close to confirmation that it gets that Mira did in fact see Wyvern across the board. Order, which settles a debate that we have had on this podcast that Wyvern have indeed been this close to the Navarian border before. I am so mad at myself. <laughs> I was so <laughs> mad at myself when I read this part, like literally just pages after our episode seven section, where I went on and on and on, as you all know, about how I'm convinced Venon just absolutely cannot be close to the borders. While I stand by my reasoning that this makes sense, since it doesn't seem to be the case, it really does raise a lot of questions. Yes, in the context of the storytelling narrative that Mira indeed saw Wyvern, then this is what leadership has been redacting. This is Violet like really putting all the puzzle pieces together. I think that we can confirm that again with this storytelling tactic, that is indeed what Mira saw. That is what leadership has been redacting, at least some of which, which means that Wyvern and Venon have been close to the border. They have been responsible for at least some of the attacks. I know not all of them because we know that Griffins have been in some of them. I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole of questions right now because we've talked so much about this, but like, I'll just say this. I need to start reading further than the sections we're covering so I can be better about how I interpret things. We're going to be talking about Wyvern and Venon 
to the nth degree in today's archive sections. And let me just say, I have some thoughts to share about wyvern versus dragons. And I cannot wait to get to that section. But I do think it's important to note here, we've talked about how the marked ones didn't know about wyvern, but Tarn himself did not know about wyvern or didn't having them confirmed, I should say. What? That makes no sense to me. He suspected. And that's why he's been putting her through all these crazy flight maneuvers, which will, of course, come in handy here in a little while. But again, that brings up my other question is, are these other dragons not sharing with Taryn and and these other dragons? Hey, the leadership is redacting stuff, but we got a serious problem on our hands. There are wyvern. I know that there's probably locational issues where they can't just talk to each other across long distances, but there's still intersections. You know, they go to Montserrat. Why didn't the dragons who are already there, who are experienced in battle recently, tell these other? They can also talk to griffins. Why didn't the griffins... Like, yes. Okay. Like, I, if they can talk to Griffins, why, there is no excuse. Also, we don't know if Satan knows about Wyvern. We're strongly assuming that he does. He says, let's not borrow trouble when she mentions, like, at least there's no Wyvern. And people are like, what are you talking about? And Zayden doesn't say anything to that effect. But if Zayden knows that Wyvern are most likely real, then I would assume Sigil knows that Wyvern are most likely real. And we know that the bond between mated dragons is the strongest bond. And I'm assuming they share everything with each other because they're a wonderful couple and they're so good at communication. But what is happening? Why does Terran not know that Wyvern are real? Because I, so I think that does mean that Zayden similarly only suspected that they were real. They've never seen them and they have not gotten that absolute confirmation, but they kind of just, they innately know and they've specifically made sure that they did not get that confirmation for the interrogation purposes. But that still does not excuse Tarn and how they would know from communicating with anybody else who is not in Beskyeth right now, which they certainly do. So big questions. Big, <laughs> big questions. Before we get into the epic battle, let's talk about one more thing. And that is Zayden's secrets. Violet basically asks him, like, is there anything else you're not telling me? And he flat out just says, yes. <laughs> like, I love that he does that. He says, stay alive. And I promise I'll tell you everything you need to know. Now, if I were Violet, And I woke up and I don't remember anything, but then eventually I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm pissed at this guy. The first fucking thing I would be like, I'd be like, sit down, motherfucker. I'm (laughs) drilling you on questions. Like I'm getting to know everything, especially Violet's need to know things. Like she's not as bad as Dane by any means, but like she definitely has a craving for knowledge. She's our little Ravenclaw. But I am holding to Iron Flame that there is some kind of mega download chapter of just like, here's everything. Now, I also understand books and storytelling. So I'm assuming also for dramatic tension, it might be sprinkled throughout the book. I don't know, but like I need Zayden to be good on his promise here. I agree with you. I also think that Violet doesn't know the questions to ask. I'd be like, what are you not telling me? That's the first question I would ask. Well, and then he'd probably be like, well, that's a loaded question. You got to be more specific. I do have a feeling that this promise might come back to bite him a little bit (laughs) in Iron Flame. Mm -hmm. Especially if he just happens to be a mind reader. I don't think that's going to go over very well with Violet, especially how betrayed she feels by Dane. That's a whole other topic for our predictions episode. All right, everybody. For this epic battle sequence, we're going to talk about in a slightly different way than usual, which is chronological. Today, there's just so much to unpack here in the battle sequence. First, we're going to go through smaller insights throughout these two action-packed chapters, and then we're going to kind of take a step back and focus on the big topics. So 
first and foremost, let's talk about the littler, fun, not so fun nuggets here of this crazy battle sequence. So I want to start off with Taryn leading the dragons. It is described that Zayden is commanding the riders, but Taryn is leading the dragons in the sky. I'm assuming that Taryn is also going to be leading the dragons in Iron Flame and beyond. But it also makes me wonder when we do get into the heavy politicking of the revolution, where is Violet going to be on the chain of command? Because if her dragon is leading the dragons on this side of the war, I'm assuming she's going to be super duper high up in that chain of command. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? I would love to be bonded with Taryn heading into battle. Like that is yes. my, that is who I pick for dodgeball right here, right? Like <laughs> I would need I would also just need him to tell me to focus like throughout the whole thing and remind me of our objective multiple times because I'm pretty positive I have undiagnosed ADHD. If anybody can tell how often I fidget here in this seat for like three hours. <laughs> As your uh, sister, I love you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But then later, you know, when Taryn says, quote, a general can recognize another general and that's their leader. We always have to point out dragons names that we haven't heard yet and find out what the meaning of their name is. So fuel, which is Soleil's dragon, means blood, which I found to be both beautifully poetic and tragic considering that I'm assuming what the Venom is doing when she's draining all the magic she's also draining all the blood and everything out of their system because literally they just like fall like a sack of human skin in that little circle that the Venom is channeling from they shrivel they up, shrivel yeah. up basically so it's like they're draining the blood out of fuel which Soleil's dragon means blood just the sequence who we don't get a whole lot of Soleil and until she she unfortunately dies let's give her a little bit of a spotlight here I wonder what her signet is. Like the way that she uses her powers to stop that rock slide from crashing onto the townspeople, it easily could have been, you know, just lesser magic, but maybe it was also her signet. I just find that interesting there. That seeing magic in action here, again, a lot of people are not crazy about how little fantasy and magic are in the story, but in this particular sequence, oh my gosh, we get so much magic from every possible angle. Speaking of magic from every possible angle and speaking of the Venon who is draining the power, I actually wanted to pull that full quote out because it is really important for us to know as readers, oh, this is what we're up against. Quote, the wave of death pushes forward from the venom, flowing outward and catching up with the fleeing civilian in the middle of the road. He falls, then screams soundlessly, curling in on himself as his body becomes nothing but a husk of a shell. Holy shit. And then obviously the same thing happens with Soleil and Fuel. And then this venom has even more power from this circle of death. And I'm going to be straight up honest with you. There's so much happening in this scene that it went completely over my head the first time I read this. Going into the analyzing of the scene of this whole chapter sequence of all this battle stuff, it was like, I felt like I caught things that I had never even thought of before. And this was one of them that I was like, oh, we're up against some capital M magic here. And the more that the Venon invade these powerfully magic lands inhibited by powerfully magical creatures, like especially dragons in Navarre, the stronger they get. No wonder Navarre has words around it. Another thing here, Griffin Flyers, they're wielding lesser magic. And because we know that they are less powerful than dragons, I wonder if their bonded humans can only wield lesser magic and don't have signets. I think you're right. Because they isn't it even said that like Griffins don't have signets? I might be putting my foot in my mouth here, but I feel like I remember that. That sometime in the book. I 
don't remember that specifically being said. I think it was just okay. that they're just not as powerful and they, they are not able to breathe fire. It'll be interesting to learn more about griffins. Since in that same TikTok video that I referred to earlier, Rebecca also said, in addition to Snarky and Darna, we're also going to more locations in Poramil. I'm strongly assuming that we're going to be talking to a lot more griffin flyers. We're going to be learning a lot more about that type of magic. And <laughs> I'm so excited. These little descriptions, apparently I'm just pulling out everything horrific from this battle. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, there's not much good here to pull. So there's these little descriptions of the crowd that just truly gut me. We're so focused on the sky and everything that's happening with Violet and our core main characters that whenever we do get a peek into the ground, it's so quick. And it's almost like this little offhanded sentence, but they are just, whoa. we get descriptions of innocent children, their dead bodies being dragged by their crying parents. And it's like, oh my God. God, like Jesus Christ. And it's those little descriptions that just add so much dramatic tension and quite frankly, chaos to this already such chaotic chapter. It's so easy to miss big moments like offhanded Liam wielding ice moments that we'll talk about very much soon. Our girl also learns or at least aims correctly. Yeah. Question mark, question mark. <laughs> she got her first like real lightning strike kill. I mean, obviously, you know, she killed Jack with the tower falling on him. But this was like, yeah, she got her first kill. She finally aimed right. But it doesn't last very long. She, she did it once, but it was a little bit of a lucky strike. I will say I do actually like that she's not suddenly better at consistently aiming here in this whole sequence when the pressure's on. You know, the fact is, and Violet repeats it to herself multiple times, she is not ready for this like Taryn is pretty much like too bad so sad suck it up buttercup you got to do this and she's trying and she's not as successful as you might think that she would be in the stretch of chapters as our heroine total side note here that quite a few of our listeners have actually asked us about throughout this book why is it described on multiple occasions in the sequence that Zayden is in the saddle we've seen this phrasing throughout the book when it's not about Violet's saddle and people are understandably very curious about this my best guess is that it's just a saying to describe where and how the riders are seated on their dragons. It's almost like a natural saddle, like just in their scales and whatnot. But it is a little bit confusing. I will absolutely give you that. So no, Zayden is not using a saddle. Nobody else has a saddle. Only Violet has a saddle. And there is some poor language choices there to confuse people. I do understand because in, you know, whenever we're talking to Mira, it's like you can't keep your seat. So it's always described as a seat. I really do truly understand the confusion there. I feel like there maybe was a moment in Professor Kaori's class where they mentioned like a saddle or maybe it's just a seat. It's two S words. I might be getting them confused. But I do agree that phrasing is quite confusing. But yes, I definitely think that it's just like the part of the dragon where you're supposed to sit on it's like when you're in a cycling class and they're like get in the saddle and it's just like you're sitting on the seat so we also get Liam's family crest mention so this is from Taryn Day says that building on the other side of the road has a crate of something marked with Liam's family crest a little later he says it's highly unstable what the fuck <laughs> like there's so much chaos happening that even Violet's like I'm not really worried about a fucking box right now Taryn like but wh- why why is Liam's family crest somewhere that's beyond the wards it's not in Navarre it's in poor Emil from what we're understanding what wh- wh- why is it there <laughs> yes my, my big question kind of like you here it's not so much about what it is which we learn is explosives but what is a highly unstable explosive box with Liam's family crest doing here at the trading post first of all 
I need a more detailed map that shows where Liam's family is from. Like a bit of a gripe that I have with the book is that the map is not nearly as detailed as it really needs to be. I kind of wonder if because it's not on our map as well as some other locations too, it makes me think that maybe it was actually done on purpose and this is some kind of key point to the plot that's going to have a big reveal or maybe it's purposefully done. I think it's 100% purposefully done. Like we as Violet are not supposed to know all of this information. We're not supposed to know that all these things are happening and I think that's supposed to be reflected in this very vague map that we get at the beginning of the book I'm curious what the map is going to look like for Iron Flame I'm going to crack that sucker open at 12.01 a.m. I cannot even tell you now I do wonder did Liam's family provide explosives for the rebellion that's my guess is like that was his family's Maybe on his, maybe more his dad's job. We know his mom was Colonel Mari. Maybe his dad provided the explosives. Maybe she did. And that's how she rose up the ranks. I don't know. But like, I, I think it's pretty safe to bet that the Mari family has some big explosives. And it's also at a trading post. So it's at essentially a supposedly a neutral territory. I mean, yes, it is poor Emil, but this is also really close to the border. And there's been so much back and forth between, you know, I think Athbane has been taken over between one side or the other. 11 different times. Could it have been under the Mari's jurisdiction and that's why it was there and then once when poor meal took it over again? But there's 300 poor meal citizens. That's not something that you just like jump to and from. I'm confused. I am confused as well. (laughs) Yes. Period. Another moment that I really love during the battle is the realization that Violet is the key to killing them all with her lightning. For the first time, Zayden is playing a supportive role as she steps into the spotlight with her power. It's going to be really interesting to see the power dynamic between these two throughout the rest of the series. I just absolutely loved the two of them working together during this battle. It was incredible. You know, like later in this battle, Zayden envelops her and the venom in darkness so she can use her power of light to get the upper hand and then their mind to get mind connection just comes in so clutch like I just absolutely love it and to see them moving forward how they work together especially with her being he's more of in the defensive spot with his shadows and she's more of the offensive with her lightning and just because apparently I have to bring up Professor Carr once every single episode, we get that line from him where Zayden and Violet together could be like one of the best things in the world or an incredible, formidable opponent. And that is being shown in the heavy neon lettering right here. And then oh, the flicker of hope that Violet feels before Liam's death, it how it just doesn't last long. We're going to talk about this soon. We're not quite ready not yet, ready. but she knows that they're going to die. Like, like, you know, from the moment that they find out that there's going to be venom here and that they have to go and, and save them, right? That's why they chose to do this suicide mission. They know that they're going in and dying and they're just choosing to do it anyway. And even knowing that their objective is not to survive. It's about taking down as many venom and wyvern while getting citizens to safety. She's even devastated that they failed because they didn't get everybody out. And while, yes, it's very sad that they didn't save everybody – like they save so many people and any life she and their crew saves is considered a success. It reminds me of when Sam says to Jon Snow when he returns from Hardholm and Jon is so upset that he failed. He failed to save everybody. And Sam reminds him that they still saved valuable lives. You saved him. You saved him. They think you're a success. Like, And it really brought me back to that, that particular scene there in Game of Thrones that no matter how many citizens they save, the fact that they do save any makes it automatically a success in its own right. Side note, Hard Home is the best episode of Game of Thrones and I will die on that hill. (laughs) 
such a good episode. It is a really good one. Zayden calling Violet violence throughout the entire battle sequence. I'm 99.9999% sure he only calls her Violet when it's in like all caps, multiple exclamation points when she's falling at the end of the battle off of Taryn's back. Calling her violence is, first of all, the reminder of this is who you are. You're a violent little thing, aren't you? That's one of the first things he says to her under the tree when she throws daggers at him. But in those times of love, in care, in panic, in softness, he's calling her Violet. And I hope this continues through the series. Considering that Rebecca chose the name Violet because of the name violence, she chose violence first and then came up with Violet. I do see that definitely being a thing, like continuing on. Oh, absolutely. And I love how in sync Taryn and Violet are. Like we, we've talked a little bit about this, how I at least would definitely want to be on his back going into battle. But remember, she's still mad at him. I can't wait to see them in battle moving forward and to see how Indarna fits into that. It's funny because I've said that Indarna will be her main dragon, but I don't see her not being on Taryn's back for any battle after this experience like they are both so in sync they are both consumed with revenge and then when violet is pissed that someone goes after her friends like jeez you better watch out because she goes after you and like lightning mcqueen would say ka-chow yes i finally found my cars <laughs> reference my two-year-old is obsessed with cars and i'm always thinking of ka-chow and lightning and i've been waiting for this moment anyway <laughs> i'm so proud of you for finding out in the podcast oh my god but to be fair we also don't know what andarna's second signet is going to be we also don't know her size in comparison to taryn at least officially we have some guesses we've talked about that before on the podcast but i'm strongly assuming that andarna's signet to violet is going to be insanely beneficial in some way so maybe like i could see us even having like a battle sequence where like violet's like running off of taryn's back and jumping onto andarna's yeah uh-huh wouldn't that be cool i'm so excited a few more little things here before we start with the really big juicy topics from the battle sequence. Uh, how Violet thinks of her mom several times throughout the battle and how she's just really channeling her mom here. You know, it's a culmination of what her dad said in the letter. You're the best of your mother and me. And this right here, this scene really represents what he was talking about. Her strength, bravery, and sheer determination in the face of danger to protect those that she loves. And last little thing. Little's also doing a lot of heavy lifting and air quotes there. Little, There's nothing really little in this battle. There's just smaller things and then much, much bigger things. The last little smaller-ish thing is whenever we learned about the when you take out a venom, their wyvern die too. Not to bring it back to Game of Thrones, but I can't help but go straight to a White Walker situation. Oh, absolutely. Like you have to think about it. And I do wonder if that's where the inspiration came from or if it was somewhere else. We don't know. But I love that trope I don't even know if it's a trope but I love that parallel in fantasy where you take out one thing and the things that it's created are just deader than doornails I love it I would definitely ask Rebecca how much the venom are inspired by the white walkers in more ways yes. than one a hundred percent absolutely all right Lexi are you ready to dive into the big, big, big things of this battle? Yes. So let's kind of zoom out just a little bit and refocus and dive into some of the really big, meaty parts of this battle sequence because boy, oh boy, do we get a lot. The venom channeling and drawing the color specifically out of the ground. Many, and I'm like all caps, underline, italicized, bold, many have speculated that the lack of color in Violet's hair is a direct result of something venom related because of this line right here. I'm going to quote this straight from the book. The grass around her turns brown, then the flowers of the wild clover bushes wilt and the leaves curl, losing all of their color. 
this absolutely could be the case. And a lot of people think that it's something with her mother and maybe she had a battle with a venom when she was pregnant with Violet. Maybe she did get stabbed with the same knife and the poison as Violet and it caused Violet to drain some of her color. I love this because Krista actually emailed us way back when in September saying that she actually took this a step further. And I love this. She thinks that, yes, her mother was attacked by a venom when she was pregnant with Violet, but she also says that Violet might be touched by magic for this reason. There's certain things that Violet is able to do that seem extraordinary compared to other people. She is a master at shielding. She's really good at the archives, standing in her archives. She also, on parapet, there is the storm that comes in right as Violet steps onto the parapet. And she's describing the storm as oddly comforting. Now, a lot of people assume that that actually has to do with Lilith because Lilith's signet is storms. However, what Krista is saying here is that it's actually Violet calling in the storm because of this extra touched by magic thing that she has. And it was her way of bringing herself safely into the writer's quadrant. Now, another thing that Krista brings up is that the dragons might be able to feel her undercurrent of magic in her. You know, Sigail on Conscription Day is all up in Violet's grill, like staring at her, like, what's up, girl? There's many reasons that this could be. You know, Sigail knows Brennan, so she might be sizing up Violet, which side she's on, all that kind of stuff. There is the whole, I've been long, I've been yours longer than you can imagine. So maybe Zayden had feelings for Violet before he even met her. And that's why Sigail is like, are you good enough for my dude? I don't know. We also have the two green dragons at presentation who have a little extra attention pinned on Violet. And then, of course, Violet bonding the second at least most powerful dragon and possibly a royal dragon as well there's so much here I definitely think that there's something attached to Violet's hair color and this big plot twist whether that is a venom magic I mean I think that this is a really strong point here that Chris is making that a lot of people on the internet are making just specifically with Violet's hair color and the draining of the color. There's so many things that it could be. I also could see it being a scar because, you know, it's always described as silver scars. That's kind of always been my headcanon around it. There's so much more to this. There's one last thing I want to add to this theory from Krista, and that is when the Venon says such untapped power, that whole speech that she gives that we'll talk really in depth in a minute about, that could also be referring to her being touched by magic or having this extra venom magic in her yes <laughs> <laughs> no it, it's a, a popular theory that's circulating around I personally believe that yes her mom this mysterious sickness that her mom had when she was pregnant with Violet I do believe that it was from a venom actually and it wasn't so much of a sickness and I think that maybe the poison was involved something with venom i However, don't believe the kind of second part to this big, big theory that 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 makes Violet part Venom. Not Mm. necessarily even like that she's got some kind of extra power in her and that's what caused it. I think that is definitely possible, but I do not think that translates to her being part Venom. I just, I personally don't think that's how magic works in this world. I agree, by the way. Yeah. I agree completely. I don't think she's part Venom either. I do love the idea that her hair being silver is essentially like a scar. It's her own kind of mark. I don't think that it makes it a mark on her like a marked one but I do think that it is a nod to what happened and it is absolutely going to come back around in our story in some meaningful way yes 
Retweet. <laughs> Big question on everyone's mind. Who is that male Venon with the staff heading to the clock tower? There's a lot of speculation about his identity and that it is someone that we know. First and foremost, we are wondering if he is a sage, the master or mentor of these other Venon that that one Venon writer does talk about. And we have to wonder who is the male Venon with the staff heading to the clock tower? We are speculating that maybe he is a sage, you know, that master slash mentor of these other Venon that the Venon writer does allude to. We don't know, but let's just call him the sage here just for simplicity's sake because he does seem to have some kind of upper hand on the other Venon. There's a lot of speculation about his specific identity and that it might be someone that we actually know in our story. Some do believe that he's Nolan who turned into a Venon instead of dying when he tapped into so much power to save Brennan. He saved Brennan, but he sacrificed his soul in the process. So when he turns into a Venon, that bond with Taryn broke and that is why Taryn is so sad. He lost his writer to dark magic and he wasn't able to save him. I personally feel like dragon riders cannot become Venon due to the logic of how channeling magic works in this universe. Dragon riders draw their magic directly from their dragons, and that is a very sacred bond and a power-generated connection. Wow, if it was possible, if this sage is Venolin, that would absolutely be crazy. I just don't feel like that's how magic works in this world. I feel like we're going to need to learn a lot more about the magic before I buy into this theory. Would that be super wild and crazy? Yes, absolutely. However, I do feel like Taryn, we would have had an extra level of emotional complexity with Taryn during this battle if it was Naolin. I absolutely agree. A few other people have actually suggested that this Venon is Violet's dad and that he did not die and that he actually did become a Venon. I I have my reasons for not believing this, but I do think that is a very creative theory right there. Again, who knows to any of this stuff, right? Another popular theory that it is somebody that we know is that it's Jack. I'm sticking to my reasoning that Jack couldn't possibly become a Venon within the Navarian borders. And the same would actually go for Violet's dad in that situation too. But just throwing out some of those theories that we have seen as far as who the sage could be, who we might already know. My gut tells me that this Venon, you know, again, possibly the sage, is not actually somebody we already know. Why? Because as we get further into the books, the world just continues expanding. And if all of these big mysterious characters are someone we already know or too many come back from the dead, that to me is not good storytelling. We have to have new characters introduced. We have to have a level of mystery. Yes, there is always that balance with plot twists that it is somebody that we never thought of that we do already know. But I think that there's too many other opportunities in this book for that to happen where this is actually going to be a whole other type of character that we will grab gradually learn a little bit more about. And I mean, we already know, even just from the Today Show Iron Flame excerpt that we did a bonus episode on about a month plus ago, we already know that we get numerous new characters. We get Sloane, we get this new dragon, we get Eric. Who the hell is Eric? I have no idea, but everyone fucking speculating about who Eric is, myself included. We also just know that, like you're saying, with books expanding, the world is going to expand too. Thank goodness. I also echo, I do not think it's someone we know. I like the idea that it's someone we don't know. In fact, probably more. The only person that I would be like, oh, I can get behind this would be Naolin. Because we also, we don't really know Naolin. Naolin's right. just a name that we've seen throughout this entire series. I mean, we could go, we could say the same thing for her dad, but it's her dad. It's a little bit of a different connection there. We've talked about this one quite a bit, but considering the fact that this is the passage where it happens, we have to talk about it. Liam wielding ice. So a lot of people have written into us saying, 
I don't understand. There's nowhere in this stretch that says Liam wields ice. A lot of people say, no, it's actually a third year wielding ice. There is a section that says a third year who's fighting alongside Zayden also is wielding ice. Yes, that is very true. However, there is this quote, and I'm going to quote it word for word. Taryn puts us into position, hovering about 20 feet above ground as Liam flies for the griffins above us, wielding spears of ice into the injured wyvern's throats. Blood streams from the wyverns falling from the sky with an ear piercing cry. People have said, oh, well, it's the griffins who are doing this. Griffins themselves cannot wield because they're flying turkeys that I said in last episode. There's no mention of griffin flyers in this sentence. Just the sentence structure alone, it is Liam who is wielding spears of ice into the wyvern's throat. Yes. And while it is Liam wielding this ice, we do have to wonder if it's actually being channeled from Day. We know that Day translates to ice, so Liam's dragon Day's power could be ice related. And that is why Liam is able to wield ice here. This is actually very, very possible because Day could willingly channel his own power into Liam like Andarna does with Violet. And that is why Liam can do this right here. I'm Actually, I've been so wishy-washy with this whole second signet theory. I am starting to lean towards this part of it, that it is actually from Day. I'm betrayed right now. (laughs) I will also say that Day is known to be one of the most powerful and strong dragons who bonded this year. Day is a red dagger tail, and you'd think that he'd have a more badass power than just ice. Again, no offense to my guy Riddick, but maybe ice is just part of what he can do. There's still so much unknown about dragons and their unique powers when they're grown up and how that works with channeling into their people. We really don't get much of that. This is totally just speculation here. I I don't know. I'm Yeah, I'm going to be honest, the more and more I think about it, the less I believe marked ones have a second signet. And I'm like saying that really hesitantly because I'm still like one foot in each in each camp here. Just the way that it would work with Coda's rebellion relic, it just doesn't make sense in the context of what we know about dragons channeling power. I think instead of a second signet, marked ones have amplified lesser magic. That is why Liam is able to wield ice here because yes, while it is a signet power, it is one of the more common ones. So maybe they're able to tap into this other type of magic. I don't know, but that's my leaning towards now. I respect that you have one foot in each camp. I, however, am buried alive (laughs) in one of these camps, and that is that they have a second signet. The mentions of Imogen being fast and her not like people just not knowing about her mind wiping memory. She has to have a signet. She's still in the in the writer's quadrant. She has to have a signet in leadership's eyes. I'm assuming leadership does not know that she can just wipe memories without touching people as far as we're concerned. I will discuss in depth the Later, why I firmly believe that Zayden's second signet is being an intrinsic and why and when I believe that second signet came into play. So I'm going to save that for that conversation. I respect you. I firmly disagree with you here. I am so in the he has a second signet. This is Rebecca's one half of a sentence giving us that, hey, they have second signets, but I'm going to give it to you in the most chaotic scene of the book. So you're not going to even I mean, 
I read this book so many times before we even started doing this podcast. I never noticed it until I heard you say something about it. But how does that work with code with the rebellion relic? I will go into it later in this episode. I'm okay. telling you. We will put a pin in that for part one and we will return <laughs> to part two in a little while. We need to talk about the Venon's motives in this scene because they're after something in this clock tower. We're understanding that it's a small iron box what? What <laughs> is happening here? What is in this clock tower? What's in the small iron box? We know that at the end of the book, we meaning the rebellion side, the marked ones, they are in possession of this box. Garrick's dragon is highly sensitive, which by the way, I don't have his dragon's full name in front of me. His dragon's name, however, does mean pain. I looked it up. It's spelled a little differently in Gaelic translations, but it does mean pain. I am very curious as to what in the God's given hell this is. So yeah, so so let's peel back to what we do already know, which you did already kind of mention here. The main Griffin Flyer knows that this many Venon are after something, which we can conclude that this is it, the small iron box that the Venon with the staff is gravitating towards. Although we still don't know what's in this ruins box. Garrick says at the end of the book that they should know within a few hours. So hopefully when Iron Flame opens, we will be able to know about what happened since it was going to be so soon afterward. So Terrence says that all of the dragons can sense that there is something in the trading post. I think that we can confirm that this magical something is different than the raw materials that power the wards and are turned into weapons because it seems like so unique and so stand out than just kind of like these materials that are all over the place that power the wards. We don't know if the Venon are after that material too. I, I speculated that they might be. This definitely, again, is has to be something else, something bigger than that raw material there. You know, we could speculate all day long what this material is. We're going to keep moving on with the story and simply call out, we do not know, but oh my gosh, we really hope we find out soon. And it's got to be something related to ruins. We've talked multiple times about how ruins are going to play into the story. I think that this is going to be a big key. Another thing that we have to mention here with the Venon and their motives, they are not only after this. The Venon who's focused on that clock tower, he's not just looking for something. He is actively attacking citizens, which makes me wonder what else their purpose is here. Yes, they are after something, but they're also just dead set on destroying everyone and everything in their path. I'm terrified. I'm terrified to know more about these, but I also need to know more. My guess is that this is something in this iron box that makes them stronger, that makes them more invincible, that makes their magic somehow or another even more powerful. We know from the fables of the Baron that one of the brothers was jealous of the other two brothers. One could bond with dragons and channel, the other bonded with the griffin, and then the other brother was so jealous of the two that he started channeling from the ground and corrupted his soul. So my my guess is that greediness, that need for more is still powering these venom, even though their soul is corrupted. Maybe that's even empowering them more to want more corruption, more danger, more whatever. My guess is that this box has something to do with giving them more of an upper hand. Yes. Are you ready, Lexi? Tissues. No, I'm not ready. We have to talk about it, though. It's time to talk about our guy, Liam Mari. I want to first call out this beautiful, badass moment that Liam has. So Liam literally runs towards the end of Day's tail. Day springboards Liam up off of his tail. Liam flies in the air, lands in a crouch, and slices a wyvern's throat. What a badass. That is so cool. But this is also the moment that we discover that we're working with White Walker. 
Walker rules. We discover that when you kill a venom, the wyvern that that venom created are immediately falling out of the sky like dead birds. So we get just a little bit of hope here. And it is right before the most devastating part of the book. As Day and the wyvern are locked in this battle, Tarn is fucking up this wyvern who's destroying day like Taryn is like basically slitting open its wings its wings are even described as shredded the wyvern is described as quote doesn't seem to care as its claws dig into day's underbelly like it's willing to mindlessly die to make its kill which begs the question how alive are wyvern i mean it's not so much like alive i think that they are they're creations of the venom so they don't have much else except for what the venom channel into them and the venom are channeling into them probably kill the dragons and so that is their single-mindedness so i don't think that they have a whole lot of i'll call it personality thinking of their own but because they are created they are in their creator's eye so to speak yeah And so because Day is in this chokehold with this wyvern, Liam is being held onto Tarn by Violet. And he's like trying to lunge for Day, trying to save Day as much as he can before Day and the wyvern slam into the hillside. I'm not ready. I'm not ready either, but we have to talk about it. Okay. Seriously, skip ahead if you don't want to discuss Liam's death. We totally understand. But we are here. We got to put our big girl pants on and discuss this. It really stood out to me how much Violet was working to help and save Liam. You know, she's securing him in her saddle. She's doing whatever she can, which will unfortunately not matter in the end. Going back to that gut-wrenching reality that there is nothing she can do to stop this. Technically, she could kill the wyvern with lightning, but she doesn't have the aim to know she wouldn't hit Day. And I think that something like this will actually happen again in a later book, and she'll have the chance to redeem herself in so many words. That's not me hating on Violet in this moment at all. She literally couldn't do what she couldn't do, and she was in an impossible situation. I just hope, though, that she will be able to be in a similar situation to save a dragon or to save a friend and that aim has to be just really really dialed in and she'll do it the second time oh i love that idea i love that idea how fucking gut-wrenching though day slams into the hillside and his body is described as an unnatural angle and we understand immediately that he is dead Violet says, she says, it's not fair. It's not right. Not these two who were the strongest and the best of our year. It's lines like this that encompass exactly why this moment was such a shock to me. And I know a bunch of other readers when you read this for the first time, Liam was the last person I expected to fall in this fight sequence. Quote, this is from Liam. And I know you feel betrayed, but Zayden needs you. And I don't just mean alive, Violet. He needs you. Please hear him out. I personally have a feeling that we're going to get a recall of this line a lot in Iron Flame. Violet's angrier than all get out at Zayden. But recalling back to this line that she promised Liam on his literally dying breath that she would hear Zayden out. I think that we're going to get a lot of these moments to almost soften that anger that she has with Zayden. And then of course, oh boy, we get the line, it's been my honor. The amount of videos on the internet that are like, you can't make an entire fandom cry with four words and then it's been my honor. Yeah, it's real. That is it's so heartbreaking. So heartbreaking. I am so happy, however, that Zayden, it wasn't only that 
Violet got to have her one-on-one time with Liam. I think that was really important that it was just her and Liam. They were a reluctant but formidable pair in the second half of our book. And he became not just her shadow, but a dear, dear, dear friend to her. But I'm also glad that Zayden got to have his final moments alone with Liam. You know, they were foster brothers. They were two who were as close to family as you can possibly get given their situation. But in his last moments with Zayden, it's described that basically Liam's saying something to him and Zayden's nodding. I do wonder what did they say to each other? Because there is a line later where Zayden is like, you need to take out the Venon who control the Wyvern. And it's understood that is maybe what Liam told Zayden in his final moments. But I do wonder if there was something else that Liam said to Zayden, kind of like how he said to Violet, you need to hear Zayden out. Oh, I hadn't thought about that in regards to Violet. I think that part of this final conversation was Liam giving Zayden the wooden figurine of Indarna. I know. Okay. Because he probably would have had it on him at the time. And that was probably Liam giving that like last little thing to Zayden. And Zayden refused to burn it because it, it was too special. We do really and truly need to talk about Liam's character and what he symbolized in this story. So don't mind me as I give a little eulogy here. <laughs> Liam was our lovable golden retriever, our loyal and good to his core Hufflepuff. In fact, the name Liam means protector. Oh, that's gut-wrenching. Liam gave us a different, softer perspective on the marked ones that Violet and we as the readers really did need. He contrasts Zayden's heavy weight of responsibility and the other marked ones' hatred for Navarians. You know, he gave us a glimpse into the hardship that these children experience from the rebellion, and he planted the seed of doubt in Violet's mind about what she knew as truth. Liam gave us hope for a better tomorrow, and he was always a half-glass-full kind of guy. He took his duty to protect Violet seriously and loyally, all while respecting her boundaries, or even lack thereof, and forming a truly beautiful friendship with her. He was Zayden's foster brother, a brother he never had, a brother he found in their grief after the rebellion, and a brother he trained with to give them both the best chance of survival in the writer's quadrant. Liam was humble. He never bragged about how skilled or strong he was. And his death signifies that even the strongest among these characters can fall and that they are ultimately powerless without their dragons. And that right there is the risk of becoming a dragon rider. Your life is tethered to your dragons. I will say I also think that this is foreshadowing that a similar situation will happen with Violet and have a different outcome, but we're not going there. We're focusing on our dear sweet Liam right now. In only half of a book, we fell in love with Liam. We will continue to carry his torch into Iron Flame. Liam, it has been our honor falling in love with your character and getting to know you on these pages. Thank you for being our girl Violet's shadow and friend when she needed it most. And may your soul be commended to Malik. That's beautiful. (laughs) I want to call real quick this out. We as readers sometimes get information from other non-readers of why do you care so much about these characters who are not real? And I just want to call the attention to anyone who deeply cares about these characters who are emotionally invested in them, who do have emotional reactions when her sister reads a eulogy on a fucking podcast and you're weeping mess in a corner. There is nothing wrong with being so emotionally invested in these characters. These are real. There's the quote from Harry Potter. Of course, it's happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean it is not real? These characters are real to us. They are friends. They are dear loved ones. They are our shadow as much as Violet's. And 
I just think that it is so beautiful that readers open their hearts so much to these fictional characters so much to the point where we do have these emotional gut-wrenching reactions when things do happen to them. And I also want to say this is book one and we're probably going to have another really gut-wrenching heart guttering death that is going to happen in a later book. And I expect to have just as much of an emotional reaction to that one as I did here. There is a no good transition from this. So (laughs) let's wipe our eyes and move on to something more exciting. What the Venom writer says to Violet. How dare you toss this off to me after you do such a beautiful <laughs> eulogy. Right before the Venon does this super cryptic download, Violet says in her head, quote, there's something missing. It's taunting at the edge of my mind, like the answer to a test I know I've studied for. Do you have thoughts on what this could be? I thought that it was when the Venon die, the Wyvern die. And like she kind of like knew that and, and it wasn't triggering for her. And that's what it was. For me, it's the, it was the third brother who commanded the sky, considering that's what the Venon's about to tell her like it's basically oh by the way you're the fucking key to solving all these problems and she's like I think I studied I think it's B I think it's B or C but she already knows at this point that she it has that capability with her lightning but I think it's connecting it to the fables of the Baron I think it's connecting it to the fact that she's the third brother who commands the sky who can kill this jealous brother and vanquish the evil in this world That's so interesting. Yeah, I read it differently. I loved what we disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the Venon's fighting style. What makes them so freaking good at fighting? Because I have a few questions here. Violet says, quote, it's as if she knows exactly what I'm going to do before I do it. Is there some kind of magical element at play here? Is this her quote unquote signet, or if that's even a thing with Venon? Or is she just really good at fighting? Do they age the same as our normal characters? Do they age really slowly? Is this woman 500 years old and this is just her fighting 500 years and that's how good she is under her belt? All fantastic questions. I like. I don't know, but that really did stand out to me. I love the idea that they do have this extra magical element to it where they are able to anticipate what their opponent is going to be doing here. I really want to learn more about the Venom. I just want a villain backstory. I want to know the Venom backstory. I And I know we're going to get it eventually, but I want an in-depth Venon backstory. God, fingers crossed. Yeah, you hear that D&D from Game of Thrones? Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) So to quote the Venon in this super heavy-weighted line here, she says, such untapped power. No wonder we were called here. You could command the sky to surrender all its power, and I bet you don't even know what to do with it, do you? Of course, we got to call this out. It's so interesting that this command the sky language mirrors the beginning of the chapter from the Fables book, which we talked a lot about in episode six. Quote, but it was the third brother who commanded the sky to surrender its greatest power, who finally vanquished his jealous sibling at a great and terrible price. Just oh, how it mirrors it. It is just so juicy, as Nicole would say, delicious. <laughs> delicious. So before I dive deep into theory land here, I'm curious, Lex, what do you think the quote, no wonder we were called here, means? So some have speculated that leadership drew the venom here to resin. 
that's definitely possible. There are also some other reasons that have been brought to the forefront. Number one, the most surface level reason is that they were after the thing in the clock tower. And that's probably the big reason they came here to Rusin that they were called here. Number two, Violet has also been traveling south toward Athbine. And she has, you know, some silver hair. She's bonded to dragons. She commands the sky. There could be a reason why she was coming closer. They were also wanting to come closer towards this meeting point here. There could be a lot about Violet's power that they, you know, we don't know about as readers. And that would be the reason that they were called towards Resin or, and, or I should say number three, supporting the last point really, but taking it a step further. If we are dealing with this prophecy situation, the Venon could have sensed that she would be the destruction of the third brother, the Venon brother, and they wanted to take her out while she was still at her weakest. So that's why they were called towards this location of Resin. Oh yeah, so many possibilities. And it might not be just one, right? When we think about what they were called here for, first and foremost, I think about the ruins box because the dragons are sensing it and they know that there's so there's some kind of magical energy around it that absolutely the venom would probably pick up on. And that was one of their like driving forces there. But we really have to focus here on leadership, and they're very, very likely involved in this. We talked last episode about the timeline of the Venon moving north. They destroyed a village two days ago, which was the day before the reunification party where Dane stole her memory about Zayn and Nathbane. Leadership could have known about this Venon attack in the area and made sure they kept moving forward towards Resin and Athbane. How they communicated this to the Venon, I have absolutely no idea. I'm just throwing possibilities around. They could have planted this ruins box in the clock tower somehow so that it would draw the venom there. However, they assisted in orchestrating this attack. Then they made sure that Athbane was abandoned. So the setup was all nice and ready when Zayden and crew arrived. Based on what Brennan says at the very end of this book, quote, that definitely wasn't an accident, little sister. That to me means that he knows something more which we also talk about in the bonus episodes of the Iron Flame previews, which we're not going to talk about the spoilers here, but we know that there is more to it. I, I Leadership has to have an involvement. I have no idea, again, how they do, but they are involved here. I think that it was between them and maybe the small box, and it was all that big cumulation of setting this whole thing up. I love the idea that leadership just has like a stone of far speech with these venom. Like they're just like communicating and four people got that reference. And you know what? Those four people, I appreciate you. I love you. Send me a DM. What the heck are you talking about? I'm talking about a D&D podcast <laughs> that has the stones of far speech and they get it from the fantasy Costco. It's fantastic. Oh, shoot. So, we, ha- we have one of we those ha- in our D&D. Oh, we man. do. It's been a minute since we played, which we're playing again on this Sunday. I'm so excited. Then there is the second part of this quote and it is time to finally talk about the resurrection theory the second part of this quote launched a big old viral theory on TikTok that we have been tagged in so many times by you amazing listeners thank you thank you this video is by Tina Marie you blow my mind with your theory videos shouts to Tina your theories are amazing so the second part of the quote is and I bet you don't even know what to do with it do you writers never do Tina and many others as a result believe that this sentence implies that resurrection exists within the amount of power that Violet wields now record scratch the first time that I heard this I was like wait how did we get resurrection from this sentence and 
how did we come to this conclusion? It makes sense. Stay with me. Tina goes on to say that a side theme in this book is resurrection is somehow impossible. It's mentioned numerous times. It's also mentioned that whenever someone dies, you burn their belongings. You burn all of their belongings. It's mentioned numerous times. Tina goes on to say that in Navarre, when they did their big old rewriting of history, they took out that resurrection was possible. But what the Venon were doing was attempting resurrection and became Venon in the process. So that's a big reason why those 200 years just poofed out of existence. Navarre rewrote history. Fables of the Baron is now a illegal book. Now, Venon aside, Tina also uses Brennan as an example here. Leadership burned all of his belongings. However, Mira and his journal meaning one of his belongings, were still out and about in the world. And so he could still be resurrected, probably by another super powerful writer known as Naolin, Terrence Ryder. He was siphoning. He probably siphoned all the power from the area and burned out in the process. So maybe the Venon were also called here because of Terrence's power that he channeled into his writer. That's the amount of like that untapped power and that indeed he could resurrect someone through the channeling power that he has now with Violet instead of Naolin, who obviously burned out in the process. But Violet has two dragons, so she has extra power. But if Violet does indeed have this untapped power, and she currently doesn't know what to do with it, like the Venom is saying, if she does, however, learn what to do with it and resurrects someone, maybe by, you know, for instance, jumpstarting someone's heart with lightning, and she could burn out in the process like Naolin did. However, like I just mentioned, it could be because she has two dragons channeling power into her that she does not actually end up taking the same fate as Nolan. This could be how she brings Zayden back, you know, a huge theory going around. I mean, you just have to look at how many times he says the death of me in fourth wing to be like, oh, something ominous is going on here. So maybe if Zayden does end up dying, this could be how she brings Zayden back after he's fallen in battle or something like that. Maybe even, and this is my addition to the theory, maybe, you know, his belonging, quote unquote, would be her. She belongs to him. He belongs to her. (laughs) Romance. But Tina also goes on to point out that this untapped power could be how Violet stops herself from dying and she might be able to wield more power than anyone else ever has without burning out. There's so much here. I do want to go back to re-stopping herself from dying though. The fable story mentions that the brother had to pay the ultimate price, quote unquote, in order to command the sky to surrender its greatest power. Maybe That means he died, this third brother, but Violet won't because she has this incredible amount of power. There's so much here. I'm going to link both part one and part two of these TikToks in the show notes. So that is the resurrection theory that we are working with here. Here are, however, my personal thoughts on this theory. I think that it has a lot of weight to it. The amount of times that we hear you have to burn all their belongings, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I don't know if it's an accident. I don't know if it's just part of the world building. That's kind of how I took it at beginning. That's my personal belief, but yes. I do think that is the way I'm leaning more, but I like the idea that Violet would be able to resurrect Zayden because, again, the death of me count, it's super ominous. I have a terrifying thought and feeling that he might not make it out of the series alive or at least he might die at some point and possibly be resurrected by Violet in this way for me the resurrection part of this theory I could totally see it Violet is incredibly powerful she bonds two dragons she has all these things da, 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 da. I've gone into it a million times in this podcast I won't go into it here it's more the belongings part where I'm like I'm not entirely sold on that yet do I think that that's what the re- venom is referring to 
here, however. I'm leaning towards no personally. I think that the venom is referring to how powerful Violet is. The signet reflects who you are at your core. Violet wields fucking lightning, and that is a direct reflection of her crackling power that this girl holds on to. Could that be resurrection? Possibly. I like the idea of lightninging someone's heart back. I don't think that's out of the question, but I also think it's a reflection more of how much she's she has within her. And Darna hasn't started channeling into her a second signet yet. So that could be the untapped power that this venom is referring to. So in conclusion, I personally do not think resurrection is directly tied to what the venom is referring to here. Do I think it is out of the question in this world? I do not think it's out of the question. And this is definitely one of the theories that you and I are very, very aligned on. We are so much on the same page when it comes to this. I agree that the impossibility of resurrection is hinted at so often that it makes it actually possible. But but similar to you, as much as I understand the reasoning and the creativity behind this theory, I don't believe that their belongings are tied to this concept of resurrection. I believe that we w- might see resurrection for Violet with her lightning, like what you were just saying. Even later on in the stretch of chapters, there is a description about jolting her heart back. So that might just be like a nice little nod to her future capability of knowing how to jolt someone's heart literally back to life. Or, you know, resurrection could be part of her second signet, which I personally do believe will be equivalent to the sun's quote unquote life-giving energy, sort of like the opposite of what Venon do. Or it's simply the fact that, you know, Brennan is now alive and it's very likely Naolin did essentially resurrect him and these hints all throughout the book that it's impossible are proven wrong simply at the end of this book and that's that when it comes to resurrection. I hope we did that theory justice everyone. It's a really well done video. Please go watch it in the show notes. And then this chatterbox venom. She's like that villain at the end of a movie who lays out their whole plans. Well actually no I wish that was the case but she definitely gives more information than anyone else of the venom. So she goes on to say that she'll let him, the sage, kill Violet. Again, we have to bring this back to is this the venom by the clock tower or someone else pulling the strings here? I do not think the clock tower man is the sage. I'm pretty like firmly in that camp. I'm leaning towards staff man being more like a general. Just the way that she's talking, it doesn't sound like he's present. That's kind of my understanding too. And I know we've talked even in this episode right here, referring to him possibly as a sage. I think that he is definitely the one in charge here, but that does not necessarily make him the sage. We're kind of referring to him as a sage for more simplicity's sake, but we shouldn't yeah. be doing that because we, we don't think that he is actually the sage here. I just can't wait to learn more about the sage being a teacher and how Venon school works. Like, you know, maybe it's like Hogwarts when Voldemort War takes over. Right? Their seventh year, and it's like Crucio is just like how they do punishment, and this is like how the dark wielders do it. <laughs> I love that you think that there's like a, a Bazgayeth war college for Venon. Like, I just kind of assumed they just pop out of the ground and, you know, just become Venon. So we're going to talk more about that in archive section because I have so many questions around oh, the I haven't read your archive section yet. I try not to read them before we start the podcast because I want to listen to them live. So I'm very excited for this. We have Andarna to the rescue for the first time that she's to the rescue. I have a feeling that this is the first of many times that Andarna is going to come to the rescue. Her, oh God, her quote saying, so much suffering. I'm listening to the audiobook as I'm doing these outlines in tandem with reading it on my ebook, but just the way the audiobook narrator does it, it's so much suffering. It's just like I, I picture almost like Indarna having like a 
panic attack. She's like in the fetal position and she's like can't help but keep that in. Just like, oh God. And then her saying, you need me to Violet. Oh my God. I love it so much. I can't (sighs) wait to see these two blossom. I'm so fucking excited. Again, it Brings me back to the question, though, is Andarna's voice going to change in Iron Flame and going forward? I need to know. I need That's to know. the question you're asking? <laughs> oh, gosh. Move aside. Jeez. Oh, like, it's so cool. Like, when Andarna does freeze time, I love how Violet uses this freeze of time to move the lightning bolt right to the venom. It's just such a clear visual in that writing. I, this makes me so excited for whenever we do get the TV adaption. First of all, I cannot wait to see Liam and Zayden in battle. Like, they better have their exact moves in that battle sequence. Back to Violet. Again, we were saying how much more magic there is in this stretch of chapters and how exciting that is. How the magic works within Violet, sizzling her with all that energy and electric power coursing through her. She is just so badass. I I love her. I love her so much. So it dawned on me on this read, this stretch of chapters, as Andarna stops time these two times, I think that this is the last time we're going to see her stop time, which is like, Kind of bittersweet. You know, we learn that Andarna's gift, or at least her, you know, baby gift, is gone in Zayden's POV at the end. She will get a new gift as she turns into an adult dragon. And I'm assuming that means a teenage dragon as well. But also she will be channeling a new signet, or at least we are highly assuming she will be channeling a new signet into Violet. We don't have this confirmed. I think it's just pretty, it's confirmed. It's at least confirmed in my head. Lex and I are in agreement that we do not think her second signet is going to have anything to do with time. I do think it's going to have something entirely new magic wise that is going to be introduced in our story. So I guess bye bye to time manipulation. But boy, oh boy, did it go out with a bang. I'll add in here that you and I are actually very much in the minority here. That Violet Second Signet does not have to do with time. We did a fourth wing survey and 67% of our survey respondents do believe that her second signet has to do with time. We are definitely in the minority there. But I, for these reasons, I think that we got time, stopping time, anything to do with time here in the first book. We got confirmation that or that gift is gone and now it will form into something new, different. Nature likes all things in balance. We are going to do a deep dive into theorizing about what Violet's second signet is in next week's final fourth wing episode before we jump right into Iron Flame. And then when Zayden kills the last of the Venon in like the most badass way we've seen in this battle, second to most badass way. I do think that Liam's was absolutely incredible. Violet succumbs to her poisoned wound and slides off Taryn's back. And she thinks, I think I might die today. This is in such stark contrast with the rest of the book where she faces, you know, whenever she's facing danger, her mantra is, I will not die today, which she actually gets from Mira. And I just think that's such beautiful mirror imaging here on the, I think this is the second to last chapter the opening is I think I might die today yep you know she's lost her mental connection to her dragons but don't worry it does come back when she wakes a few days later people do wonder like why she lost that connection did she lose it because she did have a mini burnout from wielding all that power our understanding however is that it was primarily due to the poison the venom had on the dagger that halts her magical ability and the way that it's confirmed is it says Quote, but what poison could paralyze me not only physically but magically? I was always in the camp that it was fatigue and mini burnout until I read that line again. And I was like, oh, wait, never mind. That's it. And Darna catching her. This is the second time Andarna stops time. And 
It is written so beautifully. I just imagine little, little Andarna like flying up and just like bear hugging, you know, Violet. And she can't keep her up that long, you know, because it's Andarna. She doesn't have the strength. But just how she literally did whatever she could to save Violet just uh, breaks my heart. And how Zayden is just so desperate for her to survive. Like, of course he is. But how he repeats that she has to live, that he'll take care of her. Like, oh, we love you, Zayden. Oh, my gosh. And her being like, this just kills me. Her being like, well, duh, he wants me to live. I'm integral to his survival. Like, come on, Violet. (laughs) You know that's not it. You know it's not. I mean, like, I know all of her trust in him is just gone. But still, that little line, I was like, that's not it. It's not it. I promise. Before we wrap up with the Battle of Resin, I want to bring up the number of Venon because with this battle going on, it's really confusing how many Venon there are. And I'm sorry, we don't have like a concrete answer because it is that confusing. <laughs> Here is what we've come up with. So we know that there were four Venon to begin with, including the one with the staff focused on the clock tower. But then there are at least three Venon riders, two of whom are wearing something different from these four with the purple robes, one who's wearing like flight gear. And then another one is described as having long blue robes. So we know at least two of those three Venon riders are different than the initial four. When we think about how many of them were killed, Let's go through this. Violet kills two of the Venon Riders. Bodhi gets one. Liam gets one. Zayden gets one. And we don't know what happened to the Venon with the staff. If he survived, then that would equal six. If he ended up being one of the Venon Riders, then he would count as part of that five and he was killed there. It was bothering me so much. So I went to Reddit. Reddit helped me in the fact that it is still ambiguous, right? (laughs) So the general consensus was that there were five total Venon. Reliably underscore unreliable seven took detailed notes and based on how many Venon are killed concludes that there are five total Venon. Yance My Name and Funkwork agree with this as well as Hypernova Dast J who also says there's five but that's all assuming that the staff guy was among those who were killed. You know like we're wondering like because when Violet is saying that there's only one left to Zayden and then Zayden kills that last one that is us assuming that it was the staff Venon because he was the only one left. But it's unclear if he was actually a writer. That's that's where it gets so confusing is that these Venon are described as both being on the ground and then being writers. So are they different Venon or is it the same Venon who are now jumping on Wyvern's backs who are still wearing those flowing purple robes? So after you brought this to my attention, I went back and reread this entire section. And I also counted seven Venon. The four that Liam initially sees, and he describes as those four all having purple robes. So just based off of clothing alone actually is how I got the seven. Then one of the Venon that is described later is described as having blue robes. And then we get one that's described as having similar flight gear to the one that the ones that the Navarian riders have. And then there's two riders. So I'm assuming that the second one also has the flight gear. However, when Violet is facing off with the Venon on Taryn's back, it's described as her robes are like billowing in the breeze or whatever it is. And so maybe not. I'm in six or seven. That is my camp. I'm in six or seven. But like also we only hear about, you know, Violet killing two, Bodhi getting one, Liam getting one and Zayden killing one. There were also other marked ones there. There's also Griffins there. Did they kill any of them? And we just didn't know because we're in Violet 
it's hedged. We don't know if there were ones that died off page and we just don't know about them. We know that the whole horde of Griffin writers, except for Serena and her sister, did die. Did they die also killing a Venon at the same time? Like, we just don't know. But I'm still in the camp of it is either six or seven Venon, which, holy shit, the fact that they came out of that alive is impressive. So, yes. So, we can conclude there are at minimum five and at most seven. I think yes. that's our final conclusion here, which is driving me crazy. Like I, I read that so it was giving me a headache trying to figure that out. I wish I had a more concrete answer. I do think it's on purpose though. Like we're supposed to feel really disoriented reading this section. And I do think that that kind of is on purpose of like, where are all these fucking venom coming from? Like I couldn't even count the wyvern. I tried to and failed miserably within the first like half a sentence. So I think it is supposed to be very disorienting for us as readers. It's the end of the battle. Violet is not doing so hot and when Zayden and crew are figuring out what to do about Violet dying it's important to note that Imogen insists that they go back to Best Guys so Nolan can try and mentor we talked about this at the very top of the episode what are they going to do with graduation not only with graduation but Zayden chose to abandon his post as wing leader and what, are they just going to go back to Best Guy? Now, we, we don't know that. So after all of that, with Zayden abandoning his command, the first thought is still to go back to Best Guy and get help. And the only reason they don't is because Best Guy is just too far away, which it's approximately 12 hours. This is the main reason why I'm so teeter-tottering about, like, can they go back? Because if no one was, like, Imogen we can't go back or can we yeah. go back to Best Guy with Imogen the fact that wasn't even a question for them makes me think that maybe that's just not even going to be a question moving forward because also like we know that Violet goes back to Best Guy we got that in the Iron Flame excerpt on the Today Show uh, wouldn't she be in the same camp as the other Mark twins I just I don't know it's driving me fucking crazy it's actually driving me crazy yeah. We will go full into that speculations in the next episode. Yeah. Now, okay, so in in chapter 38, there's a lot of mystery around where they're talking about. Nicole, what were your thoughts when you were first reading about this mysterious place that would put everything at risk? So I think I mentioned this in the intro episode, actually. So way long ago, callback. (laughs) At least it feels like that to me. It feels like we've been doing this four years (laughs) right now. But when I'm reading something for the first time, I'm not really thinking. I'm just like, I'm just letting the story wash over me. So I truly do not remember having any thoughts. I just remember like kind of letting the river take me as we were going. I was also fucking horrified by everything I had just read. So I was pretty blank from that. I do, however, remember sitting on my porch in utter stillness for like the last hour of the book. I've mentioned on the podcast whenever I'm reading or listening at least to the audiobook, I'm also coloring on my iPad at the same time. And I'm pretty sure I just like like froze, <laughs> like like Apple Pen in midair, just like could not even focus on like moving my hand. And actually around this time, Brett, my husband, came outside to like say something to me and I was like, shh. <laughs> and he like he was like I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry and, like went back inside he knows now better not to disturb me when I'm in my last hour of my books yeah I think I was just along for the ride as well I neither of us are super trying to figure out all of the bits and pieces during our first read I was gonna say that might come to as a surprise for a lot of people considering the podcast we've created exactly I mean this is like third reads through right this is when like okay we had the first listening experience or reading experience and 
then we go back and get all the super juicy details, which is why all of you are listening here because that's what you love as well. Oh, speaking of love, I love how Garrick and Bodie support their best friend, even though they're a little apprehensive, at least at first, of Zayden's decision to take Violet, quote unquote, to him, who we later learn is Brennan. Oh, it's so exciting, but we're not there yet in the story. It's funny that you loved this section. I was furious with Garrick and Bodie because I was like, how dare you not immediately hop on board? Because they're kind of like, are you sure, man? Like, are you? we can put everything at stake. Let his girl is dying. Let him save her. And I love, I love that Taryn just like roars at them. And I think that's them like meaning also Zayden. He's just pissed. He's like, how dare you put my rider in this situation? Thank God for Taryn. But what I mean is more of... After all of this, like, because other people were still calling into question, and that's when Garrick and Bodhi, after they had their very first, like, are you sure about this dude? Mm-hmm. And Zayden's like, yes. And they're like, okay, cool. Like, if you you have thought this through, you are sure about it, we are on your side. And that is why I love them as the supportive sidekicks that they are. Super fair. I find it notable how Violet in her close-to-death haze thinks, quote, I didn't even realize Dane took my memories and used them against me. Everybody. That was plural. She was saying plural memories. Did you get that? Which I think this is priming us that yes, she now knows that's how he cupped her face all the time. When he was cupping her face, which we've talked so much about, that means that he was taking her memories. She's not talking about one specific memory that we already know about. She in her heart of hearts knows that it was happening all the time. And in other words, she's thinking, God fucking damn it, Dane. I just want to send Violet a gift basket with all of our God fucking damn it, Dane merchandise. And just like, here you go. Here's everything you can rep for the rest of the time at Fez Guy. Drink out of a God fucking damn it, Dane mug at the calf, you know. She'd love it more than anyone. I am curious about this flying situation, however, though. Because they're flying to this mystery location, which we now know is on a reread is Erasia. But how is she flying is she flying on Sigale in Zayden's arms like how did he hold on to Sigale if he's also holding Violet was Sigale totally willing to let another rider ride her because we know from you know Zayden attempting to put a saddle on Taryn he fucking freaked out or did she get strapped into Taryn like I'd find this kind of unlikely because I just see Zoe Violet like you know like strapped into Taryn on the side like roped onto her giant dragon or did he hold her in his claw now in Zayden's POV he says the black tendrils that discolored her veins during flight so I'm assuming that it was him holding her but again how did he then hold on to Sigail I had not thought about this this is so interesting so I'm gonna go with the idea that it was actually on Taryn's back and this was one instance that Zayden was allowed to ride Taryn. Now, remember, back oh. when he was originally wanting to test ride the saddle, Darren said, like, over my dead body or something to that effect. I think that in this instance, he would literally be one big dead dragon if he does not allow Zayden to help with this. Yeah, because Zayden had to be holding her, because otherwise I was going to say maybe Taryn used his powers to mm. bind her to him, or maybe Sigail did as well if she was on Sigail. But I really do think that in Taryn is being super protective dad right here. So I think he would have, again, in this one very, very specific outlier instance to let Zayden ride on his back only because it was actually going to save his rider. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't even think about Zayden riding on Taryn. That makes sense to me. As they are walking into Erasia, however, there was this 
big moment that stood out to me. So Imogen asks Zayden if he's sure about this, meaning taking her to Brennan and taking her into Erasia. Garrick says, stop asking him that. He's made his decision. And then, quote, it's a bad one, another man retorts. We learned that this man's name is Kieran. And I swear, am I going to start singing God fucking damn it, Kieran, at this guy who I barely know who he is? Because I'm gonna. But I have a bad feeling about this guy in the next book, considering that he's challenging Zayden already. This could be total speculation, but I just I have a feeling that he might be someone on the rebellion side that we are apprehensive about. And who knows? That could be our new segment is God fucking damn it, Kieran. Uh, it doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? it? Doesn't. <laughs> I honestly just read him a little bit at face value where it's like, oh, it's just another member of the squad. Because remember, there are a lot of people on the squad that Violet doesn't even know their names. She just knows that they're marked ones. So I just assumed that it was somebody along those lines. But maybe, maybe he is a little, he, there is a little bit of that revolution tension there with him later on. And then we get the first hint of Brennan. Zayden, a familiar voice calls out. So we can assume in this moment that they've flown to Arisha and Zayden is just coming in hot and Violet in her I'm almost dead haze thinks so many strangers and no friends ah if only you knew Violet because her brother is here he's here and let's just all take one moment to put ourselves in Brennan's shoes here He's probably having a nice meal in Arisha and in just comes barging Dayton and crew like full blown after a battle, bloody, just all a mess. And then with his little sister dying from a Venn's poisonous dagger wound and Jesus, talk about showing up unannounced like holy moly, that would that would startle somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, startles the word I would use there. <laughs> like- Oh my God. I just get this visual of just Zayden like carrying Violet just like like barging through the door and it's just like what what why why are you holding my sister oh hi Violet oh this is not good okay yes it's like you have to save her and it's like yeah no shit it's his sister of course he's yeah. gonna try to save her and but on this note I bet Brennan has known about Violet bonding with two dragons and maybe even that she can wield lightning you know with Professor Carr as his pen pal and all which it should confirm we do not know this. This is Nicole and I just fully in the Professor Carr is on the rebellion side camp. Truly. I love this idea that they've just been like communicating back and forth with Brennan this entire time. I cannot wait for confirmation about this. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this. I can't even tell you. We move into Zayden's POV. And I have a quick question for you, Lex, before we start. And that is, were you expecting this? Were you expecting the final chapter to be Zayden's POV? Not at all. When I first heard it on the audiobook, I was so jarred and I thought I actually had accidentally started a different audiobook because I was like, wait, this isn't the same book. Obviously, you know, audiobook voice aside, I think that his POV for the final chapter is so fitting and it's what makes this cliffhanger all the more crazy because we don't get our girl Violet's inner monologue when we learn her brother is alive. Like, what? That's crazy that we don't get Violet's perspective on that when we have been in her head this entire book. I know you said audiobook narrator aside. I'm going to put audiobook narrator in the forefront for a second. And this is nothing against Teddy Hamilton, who is a wonderful audiobook narrator, in my opinion. However, there's two things that stand out to me here. Number one is I just personally cannot stand it when audiobook narrators go back and forth between multiple voices. Six of Crows, for instance, in the Grishaverse does this. It's like six different voices that are constantly changing. And for me, it feels really jarring. It takes me several chapters 
to get used to an audio narrator's voice and for them to just constantly be changing every chapter. It can feel like I'm never able to get immersed in the story because I'm just so consciously aware of who is this person talking? How are they talking? This is so strange. So nothing against Teddy Hamilton, again, but the narration that he does, and it's just his voice, so it's the narrator that he is, makes Zayden sound much older than the age he actually is, which is 23. I just, I felt like it was like, whoa, this sounds like a grown-ass man talking. Now, all of that aside, being in Zayden's head is delicious, and I cannot wait for more. We do know, based off the graphic that's on the audiobook for Iron Flame, that Teddy is listed on there. So we do know that we are going to have several, or at least one, I should say, Zayden POV chapters. Plus, we get the two bonus chapters in the special edition of Fourth Wing. Yes, we are doing an episode on them. Do not worry, friends. I cannot wait to get my hands on that fucking book. I'm so excited. But to answer the question that I originally posed, was I expecting it? Absolutely not. I was not expecting it at all. Was I thrilled? You betcha. And what a crazy last chapter download from Zayden's perspective. Because of his distressed state of mind, we only get small tidbits here and there. And I love it because it's a promise that there are more secrets. There is way more family history and complicated emotions. And this is just barely scraping the surface. We learn that Sagale chose Zayden for, quote, the simple fact he is the grandson of her second writer, the one who didn't make it through the quadrant. So remember that dragons bonding with a human related to a previous writer is a big no-no for dragons. If Sigale chose Zayden because of his grandfather or his grandmother, it could be either one, that must mean that even if he or she did not survive the quadrant, they were quote-unquote worthy in Sigale's eyes. It makes me truly wonder what Sigale's definition of worthy is. Uh, is it related to like the catalyst of the rebellion and knowing the truth of Venon, or is it some other way that she describes worthiness? So this also does mean that Fen or Zayden's mother was born when Zayden's grandfather or grandmother was in the quadrant. And I do want to just say, if it was his grandmother, poor fucking woman having to do all of the writer's training while pregnant. And I mean, another thing is like maybe she did die in childbirth or soon after if she didn't make it out of the quadrant. Like, can you imagine? No, I... (laughs) No, I have been pregnant twice. It was back to back. (laughs) And I can't even fathom being pregnant and having to do the gauntlet. Ride a dragon. Like you can barely roll out of bed. Like let alone (laughs) ride a dragon. Oh my gosh. Oh, like there's also this theory floating around that Zayden is actually of the royal bloodline. We know from Zayden's formation speech that King Tari's second son died during threshing. And we know that Sigale's previous writer never made it out of the quadrant. We also know that Marriage is forbidden until after graduation, which means that Zayden's mom or dad probably was conceived both out of wedlock and in the quadrant. Yes, it could have been actually before the writer's quadrant too, but just stay with me here that it did happen in the quadrant. So what if King Tari's son and Zayden's grandmother got together and had one of Zayden's parents? There's a lot more to the theory and again, always a few variations of it. Hey, I'll put this in the entirely possible theory category. 
I, I'll be honest, I'm not sure if the timelines add up. It really does depend on how old King Tari is. But this could be a contributing factor about why Zayden wouldn't even let himself think about his mom because she's King Tari's granddaughter and he doesn't like being related to him. Whoever this grandfather or grandmother would be, I assume that they were bonded with Sigale long enough to establish a deep and mutually respectful bond. They proved herself so much in Sigale's eyes that her respect for this family extends to the rest of his family, especially maybe as it ties in with Zayden's scars. Maybe this previous writer knew about the venom. That definitely supports that Zayden's whole family and Arisha, who we assume were the heads of the Tirandor province, knew about the venom and wanted to protect the innocents. This grandmother or grandfather knew about that, and that is why Sigil chose them, and hence why she chose Zayden as well, because he believes in that same mission that all innocents should be protected. Back to the point about being born in the quadrant or right before the quadrant, I do believe that Zayden's mom or dad was born in the quadrant, or at least conceived in there. I feel like it would be stated in the text if it was indeed his grandfather, and the twist is going to be that it was his grandmother. It seems very on purpose that it said grandson, not yeah. it was my grandfather or grandmother. So I think that there's going to be the twist that it was actually his grandmother, which how beautiful would it be that it was Sigail and his grandmother? So if the child was born before the quadrant, that brings up the question about if you've had a child, are you required to still enlist? Rhiannon's sister, she wasn't conscripted. Is it because maybe she was pregnant? That was kind of my assumption. But it could also be because only one child from each family is needed for conscription. And that was Rhi in this case. But conscription's optional, right? Like you can go into... No, no, it's not. No, no. conscription itself means being enlisted. So the choice of being conscripted is not an option. However, which quadrant you go yes. to is the option and only volunteers yes exactly for most people there's so much here and i can't wait to get more again this is the thing i would sit zayden's ass down and be like who are you give me your family tree i need to know everything about you but we don't get that instead we get a download of homeboy fell first i lexi I don't have words. I do not have words to describe to you how much I love a he fell first trope, how much I love even more a we're in her head. And then later we found out that he fell first. And it's like this big download. <laughs> I love it. But I gobble <laughs> up this romance like nobody's business. I love that we get this little mini download of major book moments from Zayden's perspective where it's like he fell for her in these moments. It does, however, make me think. We know that in this special edition, of fourth wing that was the mystery red tower book that blew up the fucking internet we know that we're going to get at least two scenes it doesn't say chapters two scenes from zayden's perspective what scenes do you think we're going to get i don't know i want to hear your thoughts okay so my thoughts are i think we're going to get one like active moment where he's with violet or at least like you know like directly talking to her probably something like on the mat or i could see it even being like under the tree now my question is are we going to get like a violet perspective and then immediately split to zayden's perspective or is this a whole new scene i just don't know i'm leaning towards the first one however we could also get a moment of him watching her from afar maybe he's doing something with the wing lead and he like you know gets a perspective from her 
Or maybe, we're getting two, so I think it might be like a conglomeration of some of these. We get a totally separate scene with him, Imogen, Garrick, and Bodhi. Maybe this is like right after Imogen destroyed Violet on the map for the first time, like where he's like chastising her. Maybe this is something totally different. Maybe taking weapons to the Griffins with Garrick or Bodhi. I do like the idea that we get something that's totally non-Violet related in the scene. I do actually, I have some thoughts now. I think that it's not going to be a flashback. I think that it's going to be, you know, in, in congruency with our current story. Oh, yeah. But I definitely think that there's going to be at least one of them specifically with Garrick and Bodhi. Later in this chapter, Zayden says, I love her. Of course I love her. But if I tell her now, she'll think I'm saying it for the wrong reasons. I agree with you, Zayden. Good job. But do you think we're going to get an I love you from Zayden's perspective in Iron Flame? Yes. Definitely. (laughs) He just looked at me like I had five heads. (laughs) I think that because he wants to tell her in this moment, but he knows that he would be telling her kind of for the wrong reasons, trying Mm -hmm. to convince her. And so I think it's going to take a little while for him to navigate to that. But I do think that he is going to say it sooner than we might think because he's trying to win her back here. And so when the opportunity arises, then he will as soon as he can. I do not have words to say how excited I am for that scene. I truly do not. I'm normally not someone who loves I love you in in books. I love how it's said in a fictional male character way, but this is one I'm very excited for. Now, oh my God, I have been waiting to talk about this. In this Zayden's POV scene, we get a major alarm, 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 alarm moment. I'm so excited. He says, quote, sleep is where I hear her heartbreaking scream, hear her cry that Liam is dead, hear her call me a fucking traitor over and over. So you might be asking like I did, huh, when does she call him a fucking traitor? What a good question, listener. I agree. In chapter 35, here is the sequence. Quote, I know what you're thinking. Zayden says in that deceptively soft voice of his, and there's a flicker of fear in those onyx eyes. You have no idea what I'm thinking. And in her inner monologue, fucking traitor. Note, she calls him this traitor in her head and it is not italicized. Every time they speak mind to mind, it is italicized. Same with Taryn, same with Andarna, same with Sigail. And this is the only time I searched my ebook high and low friends this is the only time she uses those exact words this is the only time she uses the word traitor full stop so it is also notable that around these words he says quote I know what you're thinking if that's not intrinsic I don't know what is I have no words well I do I'm gonna keep I know going. you do <laughs> When I realized this, like the Zayden is an intrinsic theory is so locked in my head. Now, this does beg the question, though, if he did get the intrinsic gift from Coda when Coda gave him the rebellion relic six years ago. So whenever dragons give, you know, a relic, that is also them being able to channel a signet into a rider. My understanding is that Zayden got this relic and then maybe that is when six years ago he begun getting the intrinsic signet, which means he's had six years to master the signet instead of three like his shadows. It also means that he was not under the watchful eye of Bezgaeth or someone like Professor Carr who would just like snap his neck. I also believe that even if Zayden is an intensic, I really do not think it is widely known around the rebellion. Like he might be the only one who knows maybe Imogen, Garrick, and Bodhi, possibly. I am so convinced. It is not even funny how fucking convinced I am that Zayden is an intensic. So I want to back up just 
a tiny bit here. Rewind. I'm in the camp that if they do have second signets, it would have been activated after they bond with their dragons. And when you first said that it would have been six years ago, I totally understand the perspective on that. But I thought we were interpreting it the same way. Well, I could see that he got the relic from Coda, but then he doesn't get the channeling power until Sigale. But then she channels into both relics, both his dragon relic on her back and his, I keep pointing it to my arm, but and his relic on his neck from Coda. So maybe it could be that way, but she didn't give him that relic. Correct. Maybe it's just dragon relic in general. And then she channels into him. It could be that he's only had three years to master both of these. However, in my head canon, him having an extra three years and not being under the watchful eyes of Bezgaeth. I do think that Zayden's very well versed in being secretive. I don't think he would have been like Jeremiah, who's just like, I know all your thoughts and I'm going to say them out loud in the courtyard. I do think he'd be a lot more subtle about it. And maybe even Sigail, like maybe she figured out a way to like give him that power when he was in a much more private location. I don't know, but I am so convinced it's not even funny. I'm not saying anything about that. I'm specifically talking about Coda's relic because that is where a lot of my second segment questions come from. For instance, if that is when they started channeling it six years ago, what would that mean for the little girl? I believe her name is Juliana who was branded with a relic while she was still in the womb. Like, I think that having that kind of dragon magic channel to her would not have her survive, but she does, and she's six years old now. Or, or maybe that's how the mom didn't survive. That is very dark. Yes, I guess that could be. <laughs> but 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 also, the power is channeled from the bond with the dragon, which would just semantically, that means that Coda would be bonded in some way, shape, or form with all of these marked ones. True. We do not believe that because we do believe that it is channeled, again, by their actual dragon. But just, again, like this is another reason why I think that maybe they don't have second signets. Although this Zayden is an intensic. I don't want to believe it. I just don't no, want don't. to. I understand. And again, that goes back to my thing where a lot of people are saying, does that make him any better than Dane? And my answer is, yes, it, it does. Of course it does. Like Dane is using this information and bringing it to leadership to to sabotage them. Zayden he even says this later, and this is another big intrinsic clue for a lot of people, myself included. He says, quote, Violet, I keep my shields up trying to respect her privacy as I walk to her side, but gods, I need to know what she's thinking. Now, I personally, I always read this as their bond, but the I need to know what she's thinking is pretty blaringly intrinsic. Also, when they're in Montserrat, he is talking into her, but he is not interpreting. Like, she's saying things in her head, yep. but he's not responding to them. And so... I, <laughs> I just think that there's so many moments in this book where she's not speaking to him in italics. Now, I do want to address one big plot hole here. And that is Violet, you know, like, for instance, when she's walking out on the parapet in chapter 32, she's saying something like, oh, Taryn's going to be really pissed that I'm doing that. And he responds to her with already am. So that is definitely a plot hole here. That could definitely be something. This is just, this is too much. This The fucking traitor cemented it for me, though. I've been waiting weeks to talk about this. <laughs> We're going to need to figure out before our next episode what our bets are. We're going to have to go boom, 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 boom through them. Moving away from the Zayden is intrinsic, which I'm not done with, friends. <laughs> I, this episode I'm done, but you will hear from me again about this, I swear. <laughs> I love this description. Quote, I stagger to my feet and take the two steps that separate me from her bedside. I just 
love that he needs to be that close to her. My fucking heart. Oh my God. Like the fact it's like two. I love that just description of two steps. He needs to be so close to her. Oh man. I'm going to switch away from that romantic part and talk about the silver scars. There's so much discussion around silver scars. What the silver scars mean. Is that directly from a venom? Is that reflective of a venom attacking Violet's mom? And that's why she has her silver hair that that's representative of a silver scar that is from Venom. Let's talk about this a little bit. Do silver scars mean something different in this book? Violet gets a silver scar from the Venom's dagger. We learned this in chapter 39. We know that Zayden has the 107 silver scars on his back. And we've speculated if these are silver because of the weapon that was used, whatever created these silver scars. We can guess that a silver scar is unique because of how often Violet describes his scars, even to Zayden himself, that they're silver. She always describes them as silver scars, silver scars, silver scars. But Violet also got a silver scar from Tynan's blade, like way back at Threshing. Yeah, I went through the entire ebook and searched for the word silver and then separately for the word scar and matched them all up here. So what is the explanation here? I doubt that Tynan was wielding a special sword that, you know, has something to tie in with Venom or that his sword had poison. That's another possibility that causes these silver scars. And we also have to point out that Zayden's scar over his brow, his signature one that Sagale gave him, is also silver. But Violet does not mention this until way, way, way later in the book. She references his scar on his brow multiple times, but never that it's silver until towards the end of the book. Nobody else's scars are described as silver. That's not to say they aren't, but there's, it's notable that it's not described that way. For instance, we have Dane's jaw scar. It's not said to be silver. Mira's new scar from the Griffin attack. No description of silver. Even Garrick, who got his new scar from the Venom battle, there's no description of it being silver. The only similarity with silver scars here is Zayden and Violet, which would be very weird if it was only them with silver scars. So another possibility here is that it's simply more descriptive with talking about these two, obviously being from Violet's perspective, and all scars are silver, and it's just specified when it's discussing those two. Again, I'm going back to Zayden's 107 scars. The way that Violet says and thinks silver scars almost every single time she references his back scars makes me think that it's something unique. I I don't have any answers here, but I just needed to lay that all out because there are some inconsistencies with scars and essentially what color they are. (laughs) So as much as I'm like, oh my God, this would be so cool. I do think that that is just how scars are in the book. However, I think the note of silver is more of saying her hair and making the connection there. Like the descriptions of silver with silver scars, silver scars, to connect her hair to the scars. That's how I'm taking this. Because I'm like, excuse me, as I look at all my scars and they are, my scars are white. I don't know if I would personally describe them as silver, but like, yeah, yeah, you got a much better one than I I do. a nice big one right here. (laughs) So I'm more looking at that as like, oh, it's described as silver. So then we're starting to tie silver with scars and silver with Violet's hair. I I like, like so that really puts more emphasis on her hair rather than on the scars. Which going back to the is Violet Venom thing, the draining of color. I like the idea more that her hair is a scar. Now a scar from what? Probably her mom getting attacked by a venom and maybe that was the sickness. I don't know. But like, I I love this. I love this so much. Violet forgetting everything, at least at the very beginning. This shook 
me. Shook me. When I read this for the first time, I was like, oh, oh my God. I thought she wasn't going to get her. I thought that like we were going to spend Iron Flame getting her memories back. And I was like, no. <laughs> you know me. What if Imogen had oh something to do with this? <laughs> I, I, like, I actually I don't like think that's of, the case. No. I think that it was the the, the poison. It, it went to her brain. I don't think Imogen had anything to do with this particular instance. But anyway, I just love the idea of like Imogen standing outside the door and be like, let's fuck with Zayden. Like, <laughs> I don't think that happened, but that would just kill me. That's so funny. Also, when Zayden kisses her, I just need to point. I said this in Battle Brief 4,000 years ago, but I'm going to say it again here. And that is, I love that when Zayden kisses her, he's like, okay, I need to fuck her now, but cool dude cool cool it think of baseball think of baseball you know like I just love that he's so turned on by her again that horniness of a 15 year old boy he doesn't even need to gale and tear and fucking to feel the horniness of a 15 year old boy (laughs) proud of him proud of him now it is time to dive into another one of the big theories this is such a heavy episode I know right there's never ends why does Andarna grow so fast this is another really big question as we head into Iron Flame I'm so excited about it. There are so many theories around this. Let's dive into what could have made her so big in such a short amount of time. The most popular explanation, and this is my personal belief as well here, is her, she grew so fast because as a consequence of using her gift of time so frequently in that last battle there. Nature likes all things in balance. And as an after effect of using her power to such a degree, time essentially caught up with Indarna. So, you know, she froze it. Now it's sped up specifically just for her. And that's why she's so big all of a sudden. Another possibility that we just have to throw out there is that her growing up was just her naturally growing up and there's nothing really magical about it. She was already supposed to grow up within two years. And it's been about nine months since she said that. So she's already almost halfway there. It's not a far-fetched possibility that she did just grow up. I think that there's definitely something else at play here, but we had to mention that. And I have talked about more of that timeline there in, in a previous episode. Another possibility, the nearby crystalline gems magnify lesser magic, and maybe that has an impact on her growth. These crystalline gems, remember, are located in poor meal and Arisha is near the border. So we know that they are very likely nearby, and that could have an impact on her growth there. I also do think that these gems are the lesser magic that is fueling the marked ones to be more strong. Another possibility, of course, is that Andarna is royal and this has something to do with her having special powers and being able to speed up time as she needs it fit. That's how she grew up there. I have no idea how it would fit in, but I'd love it. A few other theories that are floating around are that Andarna grew up because it was due to the battle. The idea here is that dragons quote unquote level up based on the maturity, honor, and valor shown. In our survey under the other response, so many people refer to this like she's a Pokemon. I don't remember enough about Pokemon to be able to have a better reference to this, but that is the idea that Indarna is like a Pokemon here. I love that. Another idea here is that the trauma Violet experienced unlocked something in Indarna to grow up. You know, her physical growth is related to her emotional growth and power, and that's why she it sped up so much is because of that battle. Kind of ties in a little bit there to that dragon's leveling up, but it's more from what Violet experienced, and she's there to help guide Violet, and that's why she's bed up there. Another possibility is because she gave her gift to Violet and basically used it all up, that means that she's able to jump into maturity quicker. 
because she no longer has her gift of time, which means that therefore, boom, she's a grown up. Another possibility, being outside the wards impacted her and that's what led to her rapid growth. Now, she does grow within Arisha, so it would have had something to do with you know, being outside the wards unlocked something. And that's why she was able to grow up so fast there. And I cannot talk about Andarna becoming so big so fast without the ever popular theory that Andarna is a time traveler. There's a lot of versions of this theory, but to sum it up in its simplest form, Andarna time traveled to be small again and bond with Violet. Now she is big again, but it's the first time she's big for everyone in our story. But it's like she's going back to being big. She traveled back in time to be small. Now she's big again. A lot of readers hope that she will turn back time to save Liam or that she will pass this time traveling ability on to Violet as her second signet. Some people believe Segal and Taryn are actually her real parents, but they don't know that she's their baby because it hasn't happened yet. I'm not sure quite how that works with the time travel timeline, to be honest. I couldn't find one theory source to fully lay out this and Darna is a time traveler like so many of our other theories. So I'm kind of just taking a few bits and pieces here from a lot of different possibilities and what I've heard. Like I said earlier, I personally do think that it was a consequence of her using her power so much and we got the gift of time in book one. We know that she no longer has that power. So I would be absolutely shocked and not necessarily in a good way if she was a time traveler and that was suddenly a big element to the story. Remember, nature likes all things in balance and that that's why I really do believe that time, because it froze, it is now speeding up for Andarna faster than it should have. Damn. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but I could definitely see it. I always thought that it was just she used up so much of her power and then it just kind of sped things along for her, crystallized gems, all that kind of stuff. But I love the idea that she, like, that the nature likes all things in balance. Oh, that's good. So we get this download from Violet, mini, mini, mini download from Violet that says, quote, Arisha was burned to the ground. I've seen those drawings too. The ones the scribes brought back for the public notices. My mother told me she saw the embers with her own eyes. If you have not listened to the audiobook sample from Apple Books, skip ahead one and a half minutes. I'm assuming you're still here because you've listened to it. Public notice 628.85, possibly. We know that Lilith was at the battle. So if that is the case, did she see any of Brennan's death? I never even thought of it this way. I just assumed Aimser, who is Lilith's dragon, was one of the dragons that burned Arisha, which would, of course, be one more reason for Zayden to hate her. I did not realize that, yes, her mom was there at the battle. She saw it with her own eyes. And therefore, she could have very well seen something happen with Brennan. I think so that... That does kind of make the resurrection theory a little bit stronger than than I thought it was. But oh, I wasn't I, even thinking along those lines. I think that makes a lot more sense with her being a double agent. Oh, okay. But I also think that her dragon was one of the ones who burned Arisha. So yeah, that's definitely. quite the double agent. I mean, I could see <laughs> yes. Lilith. I could see that. I definitely could see that. Is Zayden the mayor of Arisha? <laughs> Because he says, quote, which is also the reason this place is still technically mine. So I'm assuming he means the castle, a castle for royalty, perhaps calling that back. I'm not in support that the Zayden is royal theory, but it does support it. It does support that. But I just think that's so funny that he's like he technically owns the castle in Arisha. Yeah, I mean, it's his room. It's his home. And so I understand it as his dad was something to the effect of a duke or at the very minimum, the head of Tyrandor because Arisha is its capital. So the 
I don't know why we have so many Game of Thrones references in this episode. We always have at least a few, but this one is quite littered with Game of Thrones. So Zayden is like the Starks in Winterfell who rule the North, but then he answers to, or is supposed to answer, to the king in King's Landing. That makes sense to me. Yeah. So that's, yeah, uh, yeah, because they are the rulers of the capital of that province. Violet does not take a note out of Nicole's book. Instead, the first question that she asks Zayden when he's kind of like, I'll answer anything. Like, ask away. I'm an open book. And she's like, is Liam really dead? Which is just gut-wrenching. It's horrible. I would be like, sit down, motherfucker. I'm grilling you for an hour. But Zayden takes out this palm-sized Andarna that Liam was working on. This is a callback to earlier in the book when Liam said that he would have started with Andarna, but he wasn't around her enough, so he started with Taryn instead. Now, you could say that because he was, quote, still working on Andarna, this could be considered one of his belongings but they did lay him to rest so going back to that resurrection theory again I'm not necessarily in the camp about the belongings and all that kind of stuff but if it was true could this be considered one of his belongings that they would use to resurrect I do not think so number one it's three days later I don't think resurrection is possible in that amount of time just stuff happens to your body at that amount of time I thought they burned him too. Like I was under the impression that they did burn him. Yeah. So they say, quote, they laid him to rest. They don't say anything about burning him. They just say they laid him to rest. Knowing Navarre, I'm assuming that is their version of saying they laid him to rest. But Tina Marie does talk about this in the video. And if resurrection is true, she believes that it would need to be immediate resurrection. So if Naolin did bring back Brennan, like maybe Brennan died and then he immediately resurrected him, I don't think they would be able to wait days or even an hour or something like that. I just wanted to call that to attention. Again, I'm not in the belongings theory, but just an interesting little note. I think it's there more for just like the poetry of him. That's all I got from that was just... Liam. Liam. So we get a moment that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. So I'm going to just briefly mention this. Garrick says, quote, and then teach her how to hide it from Atos if she chooses. This is chooses to stay on their side and fight for the rebellion. This cements for me the shielding or some equivalent that Violet is going to have to learn how to do from Dane maybe she'll like fake a memory like she'll be thinking about like a fake memory and if he does touch her she'll play that for him and he can take that as capital you know t truth I don't know if it's like that if he if he touches her if he (laughs) fucking dares to touch her I'm spitting everywhere into my microphone I'm so angry if he somehow deigns to touch her get a bunch of but if that somehow happens like could she just shield but then he wouldn't get anything from her so i would if i was dana i'd be like the fuck like what where's my memory violet you know like i don't i don't know how that's gonna work but that to me cements that there's gonna be some way of shielding from dane you know what i'm gonna say i know what you're gonna say i'm still convinced that emogen and her mind wiping abilities will play some role you do not have that signet and not use it i'm sorry i think it's gonna play a role in our story to some degree and not against the person who can read memories like i don't come on this is how i feel with the zayden is an intrinsic <laughs> this is how i put this is that's payback so again i agree shielding comes first absolutely to this point about teaching her to hide it being everything she knows from atos from dane to shield but we have to have a safety net everybody we have to have a safety net and that is emogen's mind wiping ability 
I agree with you that it's the safety net. I do. I will concede that it is absolutely the safety net. I do not think it is going to be the go-to. And now I'm going back on everything I just said. It is way too convenient of a signet to not be used to some degree in our story. I think it is going to be used 100% in our story. I do not think it's going to be used against Violet. I refuse. I just refuse. Now, but to your point a few episodes ago, that if she wipes the memory, but the knowledge is still there... That makes sense to me. That's fine. Or let's just say, for instance, that she has the memory, that she keeps the memory of going to Arisha, but they very strategically take out the parts about Brennan or that it's being rebuilt. And again, I'm talking about very strategic taking memories away. And we don't know how it works with Imogen Signet. I know that. Like, it would be cool if she but could I'm, manipulate memories and like, like alter them, you know? I don't think she can. But maybe. Maybe. Yeah. And so that's what I mean is that it's not wiping the whole thing away. It's not wiping this whole battle away and then we don't know anything about it. That would be bad storytelling. I'm saying it would be very key little elements that would be extremely bad in an interrogation. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Maybe. That's how I feel about the intensic. Okay, that's a little huff and it's like maybe. So we get the Serena mention and many, 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 many think that this is a big old neon sign that Zayden had a previous relationship with one of the Griffin Flyers. Zayden asks any word from the Flyers and Bodhi says, Serena is alive if that's what you're asking. So is his sister. Personally, I'm in the camp that they had a more business relationship as Lexi put it a few episodes ago. And this is Zayden being Zayden, making sure that everyone got out all right. He also says, any word from the flyers not any word from Serena I do feel like if they were an item at some point he would have asked for her specifically like I mean maybe he's trying to play nonchalant but that doesn't really sound like a Zayden thing he doesn't really seem like someone who would play games like that some also speculate that he will have a fling with the Griffin Rider we've talked about this previously on a podcast did a response video and it blew up on the internet and Lexi got really mad at me for it because people got mad in the comments but everything in his POV chapter I truly believe say the polar opposite he is not going to do anything but whatever it takes to get Violet back and it just doesn't seem like he's going to go blow off steam with anyone else he literally says quote I'll spend every day of my life earning back your trust enough said Then we get the Zayden's mom mention, quote, I'd forgotten what it felt like to be loved, really, truly loved. It'd been years since dad died and mom, dot, 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 not going there. So we talked a lot about this in the AMA Theory bonus episode, but of course we have to call it out right here too. So listen to it more on that episode and then we'll kind of wrap it up with a bow here or not so much wrap it up with a bow, just fire off a whole bunch of questions because of course we have a million of them and no answers. Is his mom a Griffin flyer or at least from poor Emil? And that's why his dad was dedicated in the first place to helping their cause. We know from Rebecca that we are going to poor Emil in Iron Flame. Maybe we're going to run into her. Maybe we run into his mom. Wouldn't that be crazy? Oh, my gosh. Is his mom a Navarian loyalist? That's another possibility there. Is she a Venon? A lot of people speculate that, too. Is she just dead? And it makes him sad to think about. Like, that. it could be – we could all be (laughs) – No. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's so specific. There's no way. No fucking way. I love the idea that she's a Griffin Flyer or that she's in Poramil in some way, especially given the fact that we are going to Poramil more in Iron Flame. I love uh, this idea that he's from, like, a Navarian rebel and a Poramil Griffin Flyer. Like, that just – 
that makes sense to me. What if the seventh Griffin flyer who we did not hear about was his mom and she was, oh my uh, God. I don't, I don't actually believe that. I'm just throwing I things do. out there. <laughs> now, some people have said like, what if it's Serena? Serena is described as just being a few years older than Violet. Few years, meaning like probably 24, like somewhere in that mid twenties. So I don't think that's his mom. And we don't think it's his sister either because he did state that he is an only child and he has mm-hmm. said on multiple occasions that he never lied to her. Now, yeah. he lied by omission, but that would have been a blatant lie. So we do take at face value that he is an only child. So we do not think that Serena is his sister, at least by blood. I'm so convinced the seventh flyer is his mom now. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I was just like, a, just like, oh, shoot, my son's here. Oh, things are awkward between us. I should probably go. no, like, obviously, I, I really don't think, do that, think that, that there's no way that would happen. But I love that's delicious to me. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I'm going to stick with I think it was Serena's sister. And it was somebody who was had to be the messenger there to alert other people. Hey, you know that bad situation that we had before? Well, it's 10 times worse now. And then, of course, Violet makes a life-changing choice to side with Zayden and the revolution. There's no turning back from here. Like, there is no turning back here. And even though she is livid and doesn't trust Zayden, Violet believes in what they're doing. And I just, again, I said that in the last episode, and I love how she is able to differentiate the two. She is pissed off at Zayden, and he does not get her trust with her heart. But as far as her head goes, and as far as her, I'll call it heart for her country, that is where she knows this is the right thing. And of course, she's going to side with what she believes is right. She wants to be part of the good side that doesn't hide behind its wards and sacrifices writers and anyone outside of Navarre just to hide the truth. Zayden is notably trusting her, not just with his life, but with everyone's life. This is beyond even just the marked ones and him being bonded to her and Sagale. This is like Brandon. This is every, this is so much bigger than the two of them. I think he even says at one point too, the risk of her knowing this information cannot be understated. And then, and then, yeah, the biggest cliffhanger I have ever read in my entire fucking life. So, again, I'm sitting on my porch. I've stopped coloring because I'm frozen. And I remember he says, that's no accident, little sister. And when I heard little sister, I shot up like a spring chicken and I screamed. I was clutching my heart. Like, I, you know, I'm a theater major, so I'm not going to say I'm not dramatic, but I'm not going to say it was like I was panicking. Oh, my God. It was such a cool moment. Like, I did not see this coming at all. I know we were building to something big, but I had no idea what we were building up to. I know a lot of people did guess that it was going to be Brennan. Good for you, unicorns. That's fantastic. I personally did not see this coming and I didn't expect Brennan to come back. Like I really didn't. So we've alluded to this before, but it's time. It is now. Let's talk about what do we think happened to Brennan? There's a lot of possibilities here. And of course, no answers. So I'm just going to start firing off a few questions as I do. First and foremost, did Finn Ryerson kill him or close to kill him? When did he go over to the rebellion side? Was it before or after his supposed death? Did Naolin really bring him back or was this all a fake? Does Lilith know that he's alive? So that's just a few of the very many questions that we all have here. Personally, I believe that he was on the brink of death and Naolin did use his signet power of siphoning to more or less bring him back. I think that there's too much in the story to that matches up to that having happened. That is how Nolan died. So I do believe that is certainly what happened. 
However, I am leaning more and more towards Finn not having shot him. The way that there's emphasis in that this is what happens in the battle recordings makes me not trust this narrative. That line there about it being from the battle records really is like a siren in my head being like, nope, we know that means that it is probably inaccurate. So that makes me wonder if that's really what happened. And also, Zayden and Brennan are just too friendly for his dad to have killed him. Like, yes, I mean, obviously he and Violet have their own relationship, so it's of course possible, but they have too much of a friendship for it to be based on, hey, my dad tried to kill you. And under those circumstances, if it wasn't Finn Ryerson who tried to kill him, what in the world did happen where he was on the brink of death that caused Nolan to have to bring him back to life? Or did, the- was he even on the brink of death? Was Or did he just like dip out? But, but then, then how would Nolan, Nolan that, die? Yeah. Or did Finn basically try to kill him? And when he was brought back, the truth of all of this came to light. And that's when Brennan switched sides. Again, that's another big question. When was Brennan fighting on the same side as Finn Ryerson? And he was killed somehow by, <gasps> by Bess Gaeth. And they were covering it up because they were ashamed. And that's what happened. We don't know. Or he, maybe Finn Ryerson did try to kill him. And it was only after he was brought back and was kind of maybe stuck and Arisha for healing purposes. I don't know because Arisha was also burning down. So he probably wasn't in the smoke-filled Arisha to heal and recover. He would have had to be taken somewhere else. Where was he taken? Was he taken to poor Emil? Who knows? God damn it. I don't know. I don't know any of these answers. I am. I love the idea that someone in Navarre. What if Lilith accidentally killed him? That was another thing that I was wondering. Wouldn't? Oh, oh my God. God. So also we have to remember that Brennan is a brilliant strategist. So I feel like he would not follow just blindly military orders or swallow the Navarian propaganda. He wouldn't drink the Kool-Aid in the same way that Mira does. He, he is just described as so intelligent and such a unique thinker that I don't think that he would just be a follower in that way. So if he was this thinker, I feel like the truth of the reason behind the rebellion came to light and it made sense to him. Or maybe he experienced something with a venom that made him know that they exist. Like, for instance, when his mom was attacked by one when she was pregnant with Violet, he wouldn't have been old enough to mend her yet. He didn't have his abilities then, but he was old enough to know what was going on. We can guess that he was probably about 10 years old or so. So maybe that's what planted the seed in the truth of the knowledge. And then when he saw everything coming to light with the rebellion, again, I'm just spitballing here. I know, but your spitballs are so good. (laughs) Your spitballs are so good. So there's so many theories surrounding this, but just got to ask these questions because... There's so many different avenues we can go down. Ah, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And then we get the last line of the book. Welcome to the revolution, Violet. (gasps) I love it. And it is so notable that it is not rebellion. He says revolution. Now, Nicole and I, throughout this whole podcast, we have been using the two terms pretty interchangeably here. However, I'm trying to be more mindful about going forward because we know that Rebecca was not using them interchangeably, especially in this last line. The last line of a book is never, ever, ever, ever by accident, especially when it's a cliffhanger like this. So I looked up the exact definitions. Rebellion is defined as an act of open resistance to an established government or ruler. That's exactly what the rebellion was, right? Revolution, on the other hand, it's a very small difference in the meaning, but oh boy, does it pack a punch. A forcible overthrow of a government or social order in favor of a new system. 
This small but powerful language change sets us up for how this book series is going to be different from the rebellion six years ago. They're not rebelling against something. They're not rebelling against Navarre anymore. They're revolutionizing for change. They're revolutionizing for innocent lives. They're revolutionizing for a better tomorrow that includes everybody and all innocent lives being protected. And that sets us up for the next book. Ah, I'm so excited. Lexi, the goddamn chills that are shooting up my body right now. Oh my God, I love it. (gasps) Wow. What a good book. (laughs) I know. Oh my gosh. And we're not done yet today, folks. So as always, we pull out some extra foreshadowing moments. We talked a lot about them already, but let's bring up several more here that happened throughout the set of chapters. I don't know if this is foreshadowing, but it certainly feels ominous to me. When Violet decides to fight, she reflects on how Mira will understand. Quote, I have no doubt that she would do the same. I bet Mira will be put in a similar situation. And it makes us have to wonder, what will she choose? I don't think she's going to choose the same as Violet. I'm going to be honest. I don't think she will. (sighs) Mm -hmm. And then Violet says to Taryn, you and I are going to have to work on our communication skills. And I believe that is absolutely going to be a theme of their relationship in Iron Flame. <laughs> 100%. Liam asking Violet to take care of his sister after Parapet. So we know from the excerpt from the Today Show that Sloane and Violet are together on Conscription Day. But I have mulled over more times than I can count, laying awake at night thinking about how this meeting and how Violet is going to tell Sloane about her older brother. Now, I do have a question, and this is just my entire, like, theorizing vivid visions and stuff like that but what if Violet walks up to her and says out loud Liam is dead I'm your shadow something to those effects but Sloane can't hear her so she doesn't respond and that's like how we find out that Sloane is deaf is like Violet's telling her that Liam is dead I don't think Violet would go up to someone and be like yo your bro's dead <laughs> I don't really see Violet doing that. We also have to wonder, does Sloan find out beforehand? They were separated and she's been fostered somewhere else. So we don't know how it works with the marked one's families being notified. Is she notified? Is she considered his family still? I doubt it. I don't know about the family thing, but I doubt that she has been notified. I do know that he's written letters to Sloan. Will Violet be able to give those to her? I was wondering this too, because we have to wonder if they would be burned because all of his belongings are supposed to be but technically they're letters for someone else so I don't know how much that counts under the belongings part but we can assume that the letters are in Beskayeth not like Liam brought all of his letters with him (laughs) he brought the Andarna wooden figurine that's why I think that he had it on him when he was dying and why he passed it over to Zayden but he does not have all of these letters so let's hope Violet gets them before his belongings are burned because that would be absolutely tragic I refuse to think about that. I refuse. Violet saying, I can't aim. I'm not ready. Maybe if I had another year or two to practice, but not now. I'm thinking a huge part of Iron Flame and Professor Carr's lessons are going to be her learning how to aim. And I cannot wait. And then there's a line that stood out to me after one of our listeners, Nicole, emailed us about how Violet's lightning power can evolve. We talked a lot about this in terms of resurrection, but I'm going to pull the exact quote here at this time. And the blatant fear in his, Zayden's eyes, jolts my heart before I lose consciousness. We talk about the possibility of Violet having the power to resurrect, whether that is through her second signet or through lightning. Resurrection could be part of her lightning signet where she can jolt a heart back to life. I love this 
idea of her being able to wield lightning for healing and helping and not just destroying. I have no idea how it would work, but I love that idea. And we've been so shiny object, shiny object with her second signet that it's actually in her first signet. Oh, I love that. And then the last thing on foreshadowing, Zayden and Violet both thinking that Liam's death is their own faults. I could see this being a regular theme, maybe not in the entirety of Iron Flame, but maybe in the first half or first third, that guilt rising to the surface. Survivor's guilt is a big thing, and maybe that being something that they both experience. In, and who knows how much Zayden POV we're going to get in Iron Flame. I'm hoping it's more than just the last chapter, but it might not be. We don't know. But I could see that being a pretty regular thing that is brought up. Yep. So now for our very last archives section of our Fourth Wing book, let's deep dive into everything we know currently about Venon and Wyvern and the their history and what they're capable of. We get a lot of Venon in this section, don't we? So let's just start with what are Venon? They are supposedly mythological creatures that draw their power from the ground. It's also described as directly channeling from the source, the source being the earth the ground. This ability to wield magic is in stark contrast to the typical way of bonding with a dragon or a griffin. And this unnatural tap into power has a terrible cost. You are corrupted and you lose your soul. Venon make up most of Arian's nightmare stories to scare children into behaving, right? It's the wicked witch in Hansel and Gretel, right? What do Venon look like? Their eyes are bright red and surrounded by distended red veins that spider across their skin. As our dear Liam says, creepy as shit. Magic corrupts their blood as they lose their souls, which is why they get these red veins. Also, their hands, or at least the the venom with the staff, so maybe like the older ones who have been doing this for so long, their hands are gnarled by the power that they wield. Again, nature likes all things in balance, and this is completely unnatural, and it corrupts their souls and their bodies inside and out. So during the battle, Violet notes that some venom's red eyes are more pronounced than others, and it makes me wonder if this is a reflection of how far gone they are. You know, new venom, so to speak, don't look as corrupted as the more skilled, more older Venon. It brings forth a lot of questions about how one is recruited to be a Venon and the circumstances of learning how to wield dark magic. Again, I hope we do get all of that at a later time here. Most of the Venon wear purple robes, which is a color traditionally associated with power, ambition, and mystery. Although we do get one Venon with long blue robes, which again, we assume is different from the other Ven in the purple robes. But Venon riders who are riding the wyvern, they wear something more like flight gear that resembles dragon riders, but it's a maroon color. So they love their color purple. Venon become powerless behind Navarre's wards, hence why Navarre has all these wards around and they left poor Emil out in the dust. Out in the dust? The materials that power these wards are the only known substance capable of killing a venom. So this material, it's turned into weapons. We've talked so much about this material throughout these last few podcast episodes. They're the only type of weapons that can kill venom. It's the material that Zayden and his crew have been smuggling to the Griffin Flyers to give them a fighting chance against the venom invading and destroying their lands. Dragonfire does nothing against venom. They might as well be the Night King for all it does, but lightning can kill them. 
whew, love that. How convenient for our story. Now let's move on to wyverns. What are wyverns? Well, they are created by the venom to be a formidable rival to dragons. And yes, venom can also ride wyvern, as we learned during the battle here. Opposite to dragons and griffins who channel power into their riders, it's the venom who channel power into the wyvern, which means that wyvern drop dead when their venom creator is killed. Unlike dragon bonds, where their rider dies if the dragon dies. They can also be killed by whatever kills dragons. So fire does not harm them, but similar to venom, lightning can kill them. At first glance, wyvern may look like dragons, but the big distinction is wyvern only have two legs. They don't have front legs. They have manes of razor sharp feathers. They're about the same size as dragons, if not larger, and they're at least a gray color. They also breathe blue fire. Whew, that's scary. So I need everyone to pause just for a minute. Because you amazing people have tagged us in a video on TikTok that I kid you not changed my damn life. Willie fam on TikTok, you ruined my life and enlightened me at the same time. I greatly appreciate you. But this video explains the difference between wyverns and dragons. Like Lexi just said, wyvern have two legs and their front legs are their wings. To quote the video, they're multitaskers. I love it. But dragons have four legs and then two wings coming out of their back. So Lexi, every single depiction of a major air quotes dragon in TV and movies have actually been wyvern. Game of Thrones, wyvern. House of the Dragon, House of the Wyvern. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and Deathly Hallows Part 2, wyvern. None of these have been dragons except one. One depiction of an actual dragon has been seen that this beautiful viral video unveiled to us in the most perfect way, and that is Toothless, the one dragon to rule them all from how to train your dragon. Willy fam, I love you. Words cannot describe how much I love you. You have shown us the truth, and if slash when this becomes a TV show... They will need to get these four legs on a dragon right and everyone's brains will break and the truth will be revealed. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Guest appearance from Nicole in the archives section here. <laughs> I kid you not. I have thought about this viral TikTok video more than I have thought about anything in my entire life. I love the internet and how it enlightens us in these ways, right? I truly oh. love the internet. So back to Venon. What is their history? So the fables say there were three brothers, one who channeled magic by bonding with a dragon, one who channeled magic by bonding with a griffin, and the jealous third brother ultimately channeled directly from the source, again, the earth. The third brother who commanded the sky to surrender its greatest power, we think is a lightning wielder who was bonded with the dragon, finally vanquishes his jealous sibling, the venon, at a great and terrible price. That's the fables version. We do know that 600 years ago, venon were a very real threat to the world, which is what led to the first humans bonding with the dragons. The dragons agreed to this partnership because creating wards around their hatchlings in the veil was essential to staying safe from the venom. Now, poor Emil was left out to dry and deal with the venom on their own, which led to the never-ending 400-year war between them and Navarre. Conveniently, Navarian history books erased the existence of venom, turning them into a mystical, fictional creature when in actuality, they are a very, very, very real threat outside of their wards. So we can determine that the Venon were mostly lurking in the Barrens, which is east of Navarre and Pormil, for hundreds of years. However, they've sucked the land dry of all magic there, leaving it a wasteland. Now they're heading more and more west. 
first. So they've been going through poor meal and destroying cities, villages, just with ease, and possibly attacking Navarian borders. And that's what's being redacted. Again, I have a lot of questions surrounding that truth, but I will take it, I suppose. So that's kind of the quick history lesson on Venom that we know of right now. What are they capable of? Whew, we learned a lot about that here. There is an unknown hierarchy among the Venom. The sage is what we can assume the master teacher, the mentor of all of these other Venom. They literally channel magic from the earth and suck the life out of the ground. So as Nicole had quoted this earlier in our episode, the grass turns brown, the flowers lose their color, the energy from life itself is drawn into the venom for them to then powerfully channel back out. Magic that they can wield includes balls of blue flame that they can throw like daggers. They can teleport, like Nicole was saying, they can apparate. They can create wyvern. That's big. Maybe the scariest one of all. They can create a wave of death from where they stand, a dead zone where anyone who steps within it shrivels up and dies, and their power is now the venoms. Whew, holy shit, that's bad, folks. That is really yeah. bad. And I don't think this is the last we'll see of it. In addition to wielding dark magic, they are insanely good at hand-to-hand combat. Violet feels like the venom she's fighting is adapting to her fighting style just within seconds. I absolutely believe that magic is at play to anticipate her opponent, or it could just be expert training. Like Nicole said, we don't know how long this venom has been around. She could have been training for a century. She could have been training for five years. This could be a magical ability of hers. We don't know that yet. But we do know that venom move extremely fast, faster than Zayden, which is super duper fast, right? Super duper fast. <laughs> They use swords and then poisoned green-tipped serrated daggers that we learn are quite deadly. Ha! Go figure, right? But one can be mended from this poison. So what is the current threat from Venom? We don't know what the Venom are after yet, or if they are heading west to destroy civilization with a particular purpose and goal. We do know that when they attacked Resin, they were targeting a ruins box in the clock tower. Now, again, we've already said this in this episode. We don't know anything else about this mysterious small iron box right now, but our friends at Arisha are actively working on it, and we should know more within the next few hours, hopefully, as early on in book two. And that's pretty much what we know about Venon at this time. I think we're going to get a lot more information as our characters start learning more information here as well. Oh, that was our last Archives of Fourth Wing. I know. Going out with a bang. Yeah. How crazy is it going to be in Iron Flame? We have no idea. (laughs) But to close out our final episode covering Fourth Wing, let us take flight with our favorite moments. Oh, I'm just so happy. Like, look, we're coming here to the end. It's the end of the no. marathon. And it, oh, man. Oh, I feel like it's just gearing up the second sprint, the second marathon that we're doing. And then we got a ultra marathon with Akatar. Oh, we're just marathon runners at this point. Yes. That <laughs> kills me. So Zayden saying, none of you cross that parapet because you wanted to. None of you. That includes Violet. And I just love that that's notable because even though she is the outsider here among this group of marked ones, she is still one of them in this way. None of them chose to cross that parapet. But guess what? They're all here and they are choosing to fight. They are choosing to be a writer in this moment and to die as writers versus live as cowards. And then following up on that decision scene, we've talked about this already, but how Bodhi's saying that he wouldn't mind seeing his mother again and Garrick saying that they should be able to decide how they're going to die. And Liam saying it would be an honorable death. It's all so gut-wrenching. I want to point out again that Venom can apparate. They just like blink into existence, basically. They winnow and just like, and boop, 
there they are. I love that. I hope our core team can also learn how to do that, but I'm guessing that is probably just a Venon thing. I also love seeing how people's signets can change their body when they're using them. Liam's pupils are described as blown out while he's looking at the Venon and using his farsight. I just, I love magic and I love getting to see magic in action. I absolutely agree. You know me and I love, love, love all the magic. I know. (laughs) Sigail talking to Violet and reflecting back on when she stared her down after crossing the parapet. Quote, you're a far cry from the trembling girl who stood in the courtyard and tried to mask her fear after parapet. I approve. And again, it's just these full circle moments. I absolutely love them. Another Sigil moment when she's pissed at Violet in the middle of the battle. Quote, message received. It's her job to keep an eye on Zayden's back and mine is to watch Terrence. Violet really does get distracted easily in battle. (laughs) Speaking of the reasons she gets distracted easily in battle, we need to talk about Zayden in battle. Holy hell, because God damn, it's cool to see him using all of his powers full out. We get descriptions of him wielding shadows around Wyvern's throats. Quote, Zayden does an impressive running jump off her back, her, Sigail's back, landing with a roll on the street below. Almost immediately, shadows pull in every direction and cover the people screaming, what? <laughs> That's so cool. In that same sequence, he has a wyvern gunning it towards him and he lassos shadows around Sigil's neck and slingshots himself onto her back. I cannot wait to get more Zayden battle sequence. I cannot wait. Me too. Oh my God. Like I can just so vividly see it play out. And, and when this is adapted into a movie or a TV show, whatever that might be, I need like these exact moments. <laughs> oh Yeah. Oh, yeah. Taryn reminding Violet that he has bet his life on her since day one. It opens up so many questions, but for now, let's just take a moment to appreciate his unwavering trust in her, even when he's being a grump. No, grumpy puss. I love I it. I know. The way that Violet uses Zayden's words about trust in a moment of need. Quote, if you've ever trusted me, Zayden, I need you to do it now. Again, this is a reoccurring theme that'll definitely carry over into the next book, their trust in one another. Violet using the same technique to kill the venom as she learned from Zayden on the mat many moons ago. When he is taking her to the mat for the first time he says this is where you kill someone like right in the ribs and I love that that is exactly where she kills the venom. it's just such a beautiful full circle moment I also love that I'm assuming it's Imogen as Violet is dying Imogen again question mark but it's someone says did you see the way she whipped that lightning straight at the venom's head and Bodhi's like not now <laughs> I also love that in Zayden's POV Taryn is like I told you so motherfucker I love that he's such a dad to these two or at least a Violet and then Zayden is her boyfriend that, that has to deal with Taryn right Taryn knew that telling Violet about the venom was Zayden's call and he's furious he trusted Zayden to tell her and he didn't and now Violet is suffering and this is Zayden's point of view here quote living fire breathing embodiment of my shame Ugh, like this writing it's so good speaking of Zayden when he's thinking about how Violet is asleep in the bed he always pictured her in which is his bed in his home in Arisha so he's pictured her coming home to to be at his home where his birthright is and he's been daydreaming about that and I think that's really sweet again I love it when the guy falls first I fucking love this shit speaking of which quote I can't help it I smile this brilliant fucking woman is mine or was mine will be mine again if I have anything to say about it which I probably don't (laughs) 
I love that he just knows that like he doesn't have much say in the matter. Like he's not going to give up. He's going to give it his all. But the fact that he's like, he knows how strong will she is. I love that. And then quote, I can't not quote this. She exists and I get turned on. <laughs> oh, Zayden. <laughs> you 15 year old horny boy. And then Brennan being impatient at the door to come in. Like I, that totally went over my head the first read through. And it wasn't until like, we were doing this deep dive where it's like, oh, that's such a fun like character quirk right there kind of plugged in. Zayden says, you have about 20 seconds to ask a question if I know him. It shows that he and Brennan really do know each other. We've wondered about that a lot throughout this podcast. And this right here does cement that they're not just allies. They're not just pen pals. They really and truly know one another. Or at least he knows how Brennan is. And we can guess that Brennan knows that's how Zayden is as well. I also just want to point out such an older sibling thing. Like, you all have no patience when it comes to knocking on the door of the younger sibling. I don't know what it is, but it's just like, knock, knock, come in. Like, it's just such a sibling thing. I love it. That is, that is very, very true. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I wow. need to sleep for four years. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't even get me started. I know. I'm sorry. I can't complain to you. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us on this journey. We, we're not done yet. Don't no. worry. We know we did not get to every topic. We do have one more episode dedicated to our final fourth wing thoughts and our kind of, I'll say, official Iron Flame predictions and theories. It's going to come out on October 30th before Iron Flame drops on November 7th. And then, of course, we are doing our deep dive into Iron Flame. We will be beginning that on the 20th, just so you all know. Some people have asked, like, oh, man, there's such a big break between when the book drops and when the episodes are released. The reason is, is because when we are mapping out the episode, when it's the first one, we're not just mapping out the episode itself. We're mapping out, okay, what chapter breakdowns are we going to do? What are the archives going to be for each chapter breakdown? And so on and so forth. And just making sure it works with the release schedule. So we do need a little extra time for that, but we appreciate your all's patience. We know how excited you are. We are excited to dive into it, but we are going to be releasing an Iron Flames reactions video the same week that Iron Flame drops. So we will be producing Iron Flames content then. It just won't be our normal deep dives, but knowing Lexi and I, we will probably be screaming questions into the microphone for like two hours. So get <laughs> excited for that. I'm so excited for that episode to drop. Oh, me too. Just as we're talking about the Iron Flame release, we are located in Colorado, just outside of Denver. So we are going to be at the Glendale Barnes & Noble Midnight Release Party. We know several of you are going to be there. We're so excited to see you, meet you in person. And then we are going to be dark for a few days for just devouring the book. We do not want to spoil the book. So we are going to be very mindful on social media about spoilers for especially that first week there. Thank you so much to our brand new producer, Hayden. We are so happy you are on board and we are so happy you are saving our sanity. Thank you, Hayden. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And then of course, if you're not already, what are you doing? Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Fantasy Fangirls Pod. Also, do not forget to rate and review the show on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. If you're on YouTube, like this episode and subscribe to our channel. We are so excited that so many of you all are enjoying the video versions of this. And of course, we would be remiss if we did not say this. Share this with your fellow fourth wing friends. You know those people who who have really strong willpower, who have waited until the weeks before Iron Flame comes out to read the book. But now they're like, oh my God, I read the book so much faster than I thought it would be. And I have to wait so long for Iron Flame to come out. You can be like, well, motherfucker, I've had to wait so much longer than you. But here's this podcast that's been keeping me sane. Share this 
podcast with your fellow fourth wing friends. Thank you all so much. We will see you again so soon. And thank you from the bottom of our hearts for making this such an epic and unexpected journey. Thank you for everything. We love you. Bye.